You faking it? Fake it! It's fiction. We made it up. We made this one up. It's a made-up tale. It's a total fabrication. It never happened. Let's don't be wasting our time Let's don't leave each other blind If you don't want me My heart can't stand it another time There's only 24 hours in a day And that don't leave much time to play I don't dig that no way, honey Cause my heart can't take it no another day Listen to me. Welcome to Taz Nissan episode 243 and it's me Gary P. Of course, it's the prof. It's Carl Ryan. We are not having the time of our lives. Uh, slight setback prof, slight setback. We will delve deep into it now but of course it is Ocean Electrical. And that's the credit. And that's the credit. They've got our backs of course for our fantastic sponsors. So, um, Yeah prof, this week our draw of the defeat and there's two authors interviewed for the book so it's um for our book feature month sorry and hannah dunn meets adrian besley who wrote the history of the women's world cup just released last week so there's a it's a deep one probably very very intricate detailed um interview coming from hannah and the prof chats the former referee pat kelly a corkman who spent almost 50 years in the game and has now penned a story called it happened by chance and we look ahead to Tony's Cross. Force bus there since 2019. 2019, Prof. Is that the birth of the Mac and F song? No, the birth of Mac and F song was Finn Harps, wasn't it? Pretty sure it was. It was, was like it? March 2019, maybe. And then and then we went <coughs> to Turner's Cross a month after that and won 3 1. And then. That was he scored the belt there. But then he? there was another trip to Cork around the, the European Games, I think August, maybe. Uh, we got one all draw. McNeff scored. I think we got the bus of that one. Was so the one I reckon that was our last bus to turn us across, yeah. Mm. Uh, definitely uh, looking forward to mm. this one, Prof. Two outside the box interviews this week. Uh, you got your first ever referee on Tifties. So that this is a first. Typical cork man, this fella. <laughs> Typical cork man. Yeah, some feedback to last week, Prof. Emma Donahue almost spat out my tea listening to the intro. Mrs. Doyle Cracker Probably one of the best episodes ever Prof <laughs> Go wide um, Derek Kelly I can't be the only one Who has to listen to the intro On East Down Pod At least twice Before getting into it Every week Great stuff as always lads When I read this Prof Was Loving it He's like Oh <laughs> Prof loves Getting people Where people wound up With his intros I do like intro compliments Won't I uh, But you love so being nice cryptic You love the cryptic nature of it Yeah 
Uh, Cozy Hoop and East End Pod, brilliant podcast this week, talking of free kicks. Rovers versus Bowls, Milltown 87, Hoops for 2 1 down, Popborn free kick, top bins for 2 2. A few minutes later, free kick, same position, everyone expected the same thing, but Bourne played a quick sideways ball to McNeville and 3 2. We spoke with yeah. this before. That's going we? before, yeah. Should we have Pat Byrne in the studio? Um, I think pretty sure that came up. Yeah. Uh, we also had Alabama Rovers, this is from a couple of weeks ago, we've got to read it out. Uh, he said, I watched the under-13s final and was seriously entertained. The maturity, along with the technical ability and technical awareness, was amazing. Congrats to the kids and their coaches. The, the future is indeed bright. Yeah. A lot of people were saying they were hugely impressed by the style of football and the quality it's on show. It's going all the way up. It starts at the very bottom. And the style of football is the exact same way all the way up. Mm. Which is definitely what I believe in. So you have every coach all in the same mind frame, all coaching the kids in the same way, and they're going to be playing at that level and in that manner all the way up, which is the right way to play football, in my opinion. So it's not as if, let's say, the under-12s play lovely football, but then the 14s coach is old school and he lumps it long and plays kick and rush. It's not how it is. There's an ethos, there's a mentality, and it goes and filters all the way up through right to senior level. And then if they do end up playing for the senior team they've been playing that type of football all the way up and they can just fit seamlessly in if they have the ability so that's I was only just listening to a podcast today actually about the the famous Ajax team from the 70s total football the the birth of total football and uh, that that revolutionary Dutch way of playing and is this the one Ted Lasso came up with when he was on <laughs> shrooms in Amsterdam and they're only talking about how Johan Cruyff introduced that uh, to the Barcelona then when he went to Barcelona that every team at their academy level all the way up had to play the exact same way until then that hadn't been done like that at, at other clubs in Europe no, it definitely is the way forward and so, it's, it's bearing fruit prof so we also had uh, the hotline last week a couple of people picked Richie Towell as the player not to fulfil his potential which was harsh yeah. and then of course Richie people recorded that before the, the previous game what was the game where he scored two Pats yep and Veronica held her hands up then <laughs> so it was, pretty much a, after it was, it was a bad pick yeah um, we also had Jaden needs braces oh sorry Jaden scores braces there <laughs> against both Jaden scores braces uh, oh man he was so good it was the uh, last game of the season and obviously I had a little word in his ear I was like you know who you're playing today <laughs> don't really need to say much more but you need to put in don't fucking lose that game son it was more than that you should, you should have listened to Gar on the drive over here Gary's taken nearly total credit for the tactical masterclass of Jaden <laughs> turning the, the big centre half inside out just a few little nuggets of information in his ear you know big fella he can't turn get on his shoulder turn him quick and then you're gone and listen was, was there a was there a Mourinho style celebration running down the sideline <laughs> It wasn't far off it. It wasn't far <laughs> off it. And then I had a couple of friends with me and they were looking at me like, Gary, this is on the 14th. <laughs> and they're going, Rovers, Rovers, Rovers. It's like, he plays for Bluebell. Dumb, doesn't matter. You are getting banned. Ah, <laughs> uh, it was brilliant. He was he was brilliant. That was his 25th this season. He's had a really good, his force kind of at a good level. So he stepped up and he's he's had a great season. It's been brilliant. But um, yeah, it was scoring the brace against Bowles. He was pumped up for it. Uh, Neil Farouja, prof, named him. Stephen Kenny's 22-man training camp in Bristol, along with Talbot and Maher. So, um, plenty of shooting practice there, Prof. As Maloney says, that gives Leon hope of making the Germany squad. <laughs> um, 
It's uh, a few who spotted the Ruggers as well. Prof, name and shame. Garrett, the <clears throat> horse play at the Rugger, I'm told, was immense. few high notes for the Leinstertainment. Gosh. A few high notes. High notes. High notes. Leinstertainment. Comrades all. Leinstertainment. <laughs> I don't get it, man. I have never felt so alienated or detached from a culture in all my life. I just don't get it and fair enough there's obviously some Rovers fans out there who do like the rugby <laughs> Philly Maguire sure media um, <coughs> just amazing we, I just I don't get it I haven't been reared on it I've no attachment to it whatsoever Um, I think sports there's a couple of sports enthusiasts like I think Joe's would probably watch two flies going up a wall you know and he'd pick a team and, and be um and be yeah. passionate about it, you know. But it, I just—I'm a bit strange. I don't watch loads of other sports. There are some that I like, alright. But if you offer me a free ticket to the rugger or the ga, I actually wouldn't go. No, I've no, no interest. You wouldn't. There's no interest whatsoever. So you, even as a spectacle, you'd just be like, Meh. "I'll get rid of it. I'll get rid of it." But um, yeah, prof, AI nonsense hit me. What have you got? Yeah, well, this is James Law again. He gets great entertainment out of this. He just keeps on putting questions. I was looking for the, the chat GBT thing you're on about because I wanted to delve into it. He just keeps putting questions into the chat GBT and says, you know... Is this as long-winded as the rivalry one? It's slightly short. Well, I have two, but they're not as long. So the question is, tell tell a story about Tales from the East End, oh, no. hosted by Carboy and Gary Parsons. Remember I was saying, like, how did it know where we recorded? Prof spare room. <laughs> yeah. So it's Carl Reilly and Gary oh, Parsons. Why am I looking around at the minute, by the way, as if there's someone watching <laughs> yeah. us? Carl Reilly and Gary Parsons were two lifelong friends and diehard football fans. They shared a deep passion for their local team, Shamrock Rovers, and had insatiable appetite for football knowledge and discussion. One day, fueled by their love for the beautiful game and their desire to connect with fellow fans, they decided to start a podcast, Tales from the East End. The podcast took its name from the iconic East End of Tata Stadium, the home ground of Shamrock Rovers. Carol and Gary wanted their podcast to be a platform where they could share their insights, engage in live discussions and bring the world of football to their fellow fans. With a small recording studio set up in Carl's spare room, <laughs> the duo kicked off their first episode. I'm not too comfortable with the spare room anymore. Probably. Their chemistry was undeniable with Carol's witty humour, don't know about that, complimenting Gary's thoughtful analysis. I think, <laughs> don't know about that I think they have it backwards. <laughs> yeah. They covered a range of topics from match reviews and tactical breakdowns to player interviews and fan stories. Word of their podcast quickly spread among the Shamrock Rovers fan base and beyond. Fans eagerly awaited each new episode, tuning in to hear the latest discussions and perspectives from Carol and Gary. They became a voice for the fans, reflecting the excitement, frustrations and dreams that coursed through the veins of every Shamrock Rovers supporter. <laughs> As the podcast gained popularity, Gary and Carl's expanded their horizons. They invited special guests, including former players, coaches, prominent figures in Irish football, to share their experiences and insights. Listeners were treated to exclusive behind-the-scenes stories and personal anecdotes that brought the club's history to life. The success of Tales from the East End extended beyond the podcasting world. Carl and Gary became recognisable figures within the football community, attending matches, hosting live events and engaging with fans on social media. They're this is generic enough though, isn't it? Yeah. You could yeah. say this about any kind of podcast. Yeah. Like they're not I'm waiting for something <laughs> to catch me here. Their authentic and passionate approach to football analysis resonated with listeners who saw them not just as podcast hosts, but as friends who share the love for the game. 
but it wasn't just about the fame or recognition for Carol and Gary. They remained true to their roots, always prioritising the voices of the fans. They That's actively encouraged listeners to participate in the podcast by sharing their own stories, memories and opinions. Oh. Each episode became a celebration of the shared experiences and unwavering support that defined the Shamrock Rovers community. Tales from the East Sand became more than just a podcast, it became a movement. Fans, <laughs> fans from different walks of life united under the banner of Carol and Carrie's words, <laughs> finding solace and inspiration in their discussions. The podcast became a space where friendships were formed, memories shared, dreams were nurtured. As the years went by, Carol and Gary continued to evolve their podcast. I think it just gets repetitive now, isn't it? Yeah. Embracing new formats and exploring different avenues within the world of football, their passion remained undimmed and the bond they shared with their listeners grew stronger with each episode. Tales from the East End became an integral part of the Shamrock Rovers fan experience, immortalising the stories and emotions that echoed through the East End of Tata Stadium. Carol and Gary had not only created a podcast, but they had also forged a community, a community bound with their love for sham growers and the beautiful game of football. That's not too far off. The community thing isn't too far off. We've been doing that for years and we've trying to bring people together and that. There's another one about the downfall of Tales from the East End. We have a falling out. What? Will I, will I say for next week or do you want to hear it now? I think I want to hear it now. I want to hear the downfall. But I think <clears throat> this is a... This, I was waiting for this, for something to be a bit too much. Yeah. Like Green Ribbon or something. If they knew about that, I'd be like, right, this is this is too much. I feel like I'd spot this pretty fast though. That that G- chat GBT is speaking to me and not a person. Yeah, uh, easy, yeah. Like Sail Park took the piss out of that and they had a great episode recently. Uh Stan's girlfriend Wendy, she complains that her friend she's getting great back and forth with texts with her boyfriend. And she's showing all her mates and like, Oh look at this, he's saying he loved me and he cherishes me and our relationship means so much and then she looks at Stan's phone and it's all just thumbs up emojis <laughs> but then Stan discovers that the boyfriend is actually just using chat GBT and he hasn't spoken to her in like in months he's just using the the AI I, th- I will say the turnaround for South Park is outrageous something yeah. will happen and they'll have a, an episode out within 3 or 4 days at times they did knock Mentor in that yeah. do you remember that 6 days to air or something yeah yeah or they something. knocked them out like do you want to hear this give one? me the downfall prof are they just going to tell us what happened in this video? <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they got any ideas from the actual documentary you made, the mockumentary. So, it was asked, tell a story about the downfall of Tales from the East End podcast hosted by Carol Riding and Gary Parsons. Shiders. Carol Riding and Gary Parsons had been the dynamic duo behind the popular Tales from the East End podcast, which had captured the hearts of football fans, particularly those who supported Shamrock Rovers. For years, the podcast had thrived fostering a sense of community and providing a platform for insightful discussions about the beautiful game. However, little did anyone know that behind the scenes, the podcast was facing an impending downfall. It all began with a simple disagreement. Carol and Gary, known for their passionate and opinionated discussions, found themselves at odds over a controversial incident in a recent match. The disagreement spilled over into their personal lives, (laughs) straining their friendship and creating tension within the podcast. As the weeks went by, the chemistry between Carl and Gary became strained as we reflected in their podcast episodes. What was once a seamless flow of banter and analysis now felt forced and disjointed. The joy and enthusiasm that had characterised their discussions were replaced with (laughs) passive-aggressive remarks and awkward silences. Their loyal listeners, who had grown accustomed to their vibrant and engaging conversations, sensed the shift. The once active comment sections became filled with concerned remarks and questions about the future of the podcast. 
Carl and Gary tried to address the issue, acknowledging the tension, but assuring their fans that they would work through it. However, behind closed doors, the situation worsened. Egos clashed, and disagreements escalated into full-blown arguments. The cracks in their friendship widened, as it seemed as though the podcast was hanging by a thread. In an attempt to salvage what was left, Carl and Gary decided to take a break from recording. They hoped that some time apart would help them regain their footing and reignite their passion for the podcast. But as days turned into weeks and weeks into months, the break turned into an indefinite hiatus. Listeners grew restless, wondering if Tales from the East End would ever return. They reached out through social media, pleading for an update, but their pleas fell on deaf ears. Carol and Gary, consumed by their personal differences, had all but abandoned the podcast that had once brought joy and camaraderie to their fans. Time passed and the Tales from the East End podcast became a distant memory. The void it left behind was felt by both long-time listeners and those who had recently discovered the show. The absence of Carl and Gary's voices in the football community left a void that could not easily be filled. Occasionally, fans would reminisce about the good old days of the podcast, sharing their favourite episodes and the impact that Carl and Gary had in their lives. The legacy of Tales from the East End lived on in the hearts of those who had been touched by its discussions and had found a sense of belonging within its virtual walls. Uh, last paragraph now. Virtual walls. In the end, the downfall of Tales from the East End served as a reminder of the fragility of relationships and the unpredictable nature of life. It underscored the importance of communication, compromise, and nurturing friendships. The podcast may have come to an end, but the lessons learned from its downfall would forever linger in the minds of those who had been touched by its once vibrant presence. Insert name of every other podcast <laughs> insert name of every other host I at least I know how to spot the bots anyway so if <laughs> yeah. AI ever does come along they start talking like this that's a bot there's a word I don't think I ever used vibrant vibrant I like vibrant I like it but I don't think I ever like if I ever used to describe an atmosphere or something or anything do you know what would have been vibrant when Palmeiras came to the south stand vibrant that's a fair point yeah or, Ticker when, or when Pauk came <laughs> Yes, Pauk. Yeah. Um <clears throat> Intimidating, I call that. <clears throat> yeah, so Prof, that's the AI section. Uh, the bots going to take over. I'll be able to spot them, though. Don't worry. I've got um, one for you next week now. You can look forward to that. <laughs> um, one, one more mad one. Uh, yes, yeah, so up next we have um, Adrian Besley. We're joined now by Adrian Besley, whose latest book, The History of the Women's World Cup, is out this week. It's a celebration of women's football's most prestigious tournament. Welcome to the show, Adrian. All right, thank you. You've written a large number of books on football and music. How did this project project come about and did you have any interest in women's football yourself beforehand? Um, uh, I, I'm inter- obviously, I've been interested in football. I have taken more and more, I think like a lot of people, I've taken more of an interest in women's football over the last five years or so. Um, I've got daughter of my own who started playing and has carried on playing she's 20 now and has carried on playing so because of that I've taken more of an interest um, and the last World Cup and the Euros kind of um, uh, that that made it blossom a bit more and the, and its presence in the media I think has, has become a thing that it, it's if you like football it's difficult to ignore now so I think I've been swept along in that way Although I've always had a kind of interest in it anyway. I've always been a a big advocate and and enjoyed games. I went to see see Arsenal game about 10 years, 10, 15 years ago. 
um, against Wolfsburg, and it was a great game. And and possibly since then, it's, it's my interest has been growing. Australia and New Zealand are the first ever co-hosts of the Women's World Cup, and we're now only two months away. Is it a big deal over there to be staging this tournament, and will they put on a spectacle? I think, I think so. I mean, it's, uh, it's a big move by FIFA, I think, to to give them the the World Cup, partly because of the TV times over over in Europe, um, which is a big thing, and they were building so much on their kind of worldwide um, tele- global television. Um, but I applaud them. They I don't think FIFA have always historically been great at women's football, but I think they've got it now, and they're inter- they're interested in growing it as a global global sport. Um, those two countries love sport. They're very <laughs> very sporty countries. I think Australia are very uh, particularly uh, uh, good followers of women's football, and I know they've already had to move the stadium for the opening game because of the ticket interest. So I think their hopes are up that it will be really, really successful. Um, and I think Australia could be a, could be um, quite a, su- a surprise success there, which which obviously will breed more and more enthusiasm. The World Cup started from humble beginnings with the early unofficial tournaments, first in Italy in 1970, before it was officially recognised by FIFA in China in 1991 and became the global phenomenon of today. Tell us how it started. Well, um, as you said, there was, there was tournaments throughout the, from 1970 and 71. Um, there was a uh, 1970 in Italy and they had, uh, I think, eight teams. And they were getting good. They were getting good crowds, and I think I think they said there was they were getting around thirty thousand or even fifty thousand for the final. So it wasn't as though it was being ignored. And that was in nineteen seventy, and and again in seventy one in Mexico, um, in the eighties there these these mundelitos, these little World Cups that were going on in in Italy. Um, so the, it was growing. And, and even in Asia, they were still, they having their own international tournaments and inviting some other teams along. But their problem was that FIFA were kind of turning a blind eye to it at that time. And even in was it nineteen eighty eight in China when the kind of first first world first World Cup was kind of held, FIFA didn't really recognise it. So it wasn't until nineteen ninety one. That they said, okay, we can call it a, we'll accept calling it a FIFA World Cup. So, in the history books, 1991 became the official starting point of the World Cup. Um, there were 12 teams, there was, they went up to 16 in 1991, 24 teams in 95, and now we're, now we're faced with 32 this Um So, the whole thing's been growing and becoming more and more successful, I think, globally, particularly with, with television viewers. Um, you know, I think there was 80 million watched the final in 2019, and that was double the number of people who watched it in 2015. So, um, yeah, FIFA, FIFA are on board and they're back in it, and the whole thing is growing and going exponentially, I think. 
The Women's World Cup is, ent- is entering its ninth rendition and only four nations have won it. USA, the holders, four times. Norway, Germany and Japan. USA and reigning cha- European champions, England, have been hit with a lot of injuries. But are the Americans and the Lionesses still the two strong favourites to lift the trophy this summer? Um, this, the injury situation, I think, has clouded everything. USA, so USA have been hit quite badly. Um, England have been hit quite badly. The the ACL thing amongst women, that women seem, seem particularly prone to ACL injuries, it's kind of robbed the tournament of some of its biggest stars. But there'll be other ones. There's, there's plenty there who will kind of take their place, I think. I think that's clouded who might win. I, I think Germany, for, my, for what it's worth, I think Germany... They've kind of avoided the injuries as well, more than anybody, and they've got some class players, and they know how to play. And I think, you know, I think they were very unlucky in the Euros, really, that they were missing um, Alexander Pop for the final. Um, so, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't take any notice of what I'd say, but I'd put my money on Germany. Alex Morgan, one of the most talented players ever to grace the stage, says it's USA's best ever team. Megan Rapino was the Golden Boot and Golden Ball winner in 2019, and we saw Martha's Magic in 20, 2007, leading Brazil to the final. Who do you think are the most iconic teams, players, and goals in World Cup history? Um, teams, players, goals. I don't. I mean, what's, what's incredible about the USA is that how they um, they've had a, a 90s team and a 2000s team. And they keep regenerating with new players, and they've constantly been the best team in the finals. I think that team, if I had to pick a team, the one that won the 19, sorry, 2015, 2019 team was probably my, my pick because, you know, they had, they had a great side, they had. Um, Hope Solo and Carly Lloyd and Alex Morgan, Megan Rapid Hope. But they also to fight against uh, playing on surfaces, they felt from maternity benefits. Um, so I think as well as being a pretty, a pretty unbeatable team, I think they went 40-something 40 40 games unbeaten. So I, I think that particular, I mean, you've got to look at USA generally, but that particular USA team are hard to look beyond. Um, the best players, you mentioned it. I mean, again, I'd, I'd go near Ham as probably the, the, the most iconic player, partly because she, she was a fantastic player, but also she did so much for the women's game. She did so much in raising the profile and use used her own profile to raise the profile of the game. So um, that, so I think she'd be my pick as the, the, the greatest player. Um, what was it? Was it goals? Was uh, it? Yeah. Goals. Uh, I've got two favourites. Um, Marta's goal um, in 2007, when she did this that little flick with the back heel, and she ran into the area, she was facing the wrong way and somehow swiveled and, sh- and, and put a shot inside the bottom left-hand corner. And I 
kind of thing. And you look at that skill and you think, in all the years I've watched kind of men's games, you know, you look at you look at the greatest men's players, and that that is up there with, with anything that you know at, at the top level to be able to form that kind of skill. And Marta's is such a fantastic player to watch. Um, and then I think you've got to go to Hager Reese's goal for Denmark in uh, two thousand and eleven. Was it in the final? When she ran the length of the pitch and took on a, took on a couple of players and slotted the ball home in the final and think against Germany, and you've got to think well to do that in the final takes some doing. Marta's goal is probably nicer to watch, but to, as a as a great goal to win to win a final with a goal like that is fantastic. Is there an iconic photo that was the first to come to mind when choosing the ones that would be included in your book? Um. It's very difficult. The, the photos are very difficult, difficult to get hold of. So I think the one people would probably think of is the Brandy Chastain one when she takes her top off and points to the sky and everything, and and uh, with her pinches her fists. Um, we were, I would say, we were unable to get that in the book. And um, the picture I love in the book is a picture of the um, German keeper Angera after she saved Marta's penalty. And um, it's it's got that whole thing about um, that thing you really you see with a goalie when it's so oh, so difficult for goalies to make to have that kind of celebration. But she, she knew that that save had changed the changed the game. I think it was midway through the second half, and that look on her face, that determination, that realization, what she's done makes it a great photo I think it's the best photo in the book what was the most surprising fact you learned from writing it um it's a difficult one but I think it's just just the way that it's been that's kind of hidden is the fact that women's football has always been popular and it's always been successful you can go back to the 1920s in England with Dick Kerr's team who were getting massive crowds. We go back to those early World Cups when they were getting... In 1971, they got 111,000 people at the Azteca Stadium for the final in Dem for Denmark against Mexico. I think to get 111,000 111, for a women's game when we were kind of up. Possibly you weren't because you were, you were a lot younger than I was, but we were brought up to think that women's football was never going to be popular and um, people didn't didn't want it, didn't need it. And yet whenever they've played it, whenever they've played these World Cups, in China, in USA, in Mexico, people have turned out to watch. And the same thing is happening now in the, uh, in the professional leagues around when they... When they're given a chance, people people will go and see it and really love it. And I think that's that's the kind of thing that I did, I didn't realise because I'd grown up thinking it was a bit of a sideshow, but no one was really interested. And yet, people have always been interested. The women's game is growing at a rapid rate, and the tournament finals increased to twelve teams in nineteen ninety five and sixteen teams in nineteen ninety nine. When America won on home soil in front of a crowd of ninety one thousand people at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. 24 teams took part in 2015 and 2019. And as we said, 
there are now 32 participants. Has the expansion improved or diluted the quality of football and show in your view? Um, I think I think it's it's improved it generally. I think I think that there's always a an element of catch up with teams who have not had the chance to play in leagues and with, and and unfortunately I think it's it, the women's game is kind of following the men's game in that the the teams with the with the money are getting the big players so the champ and the Champions League so unless your players are playing in the Champions League um, so I think to a certain extent there's teams in the Middle East and there's teams in Asia that are good players that just need the chance to compete against teams in order to raise their standards um, but from what I've seen and what I've, I saw researching this book is I think the standards are are increasing generally um, yeah that record I think USA beat Thailand 13 nil um, in 2019 I, I don't think we'll get that kind of result again um, and and it is a learning experience and it does take time for these teams a lot of them are new a lot of the professional leagues are new I think and and that that will take a while to come through. So I don't expect all the teams to be of a similar standard. But I think in general, the standards are rising. The World Cup trophy will be brought to each participating nation for public events, and it appeared at Irish Town Stadium in Dublin last week. Ireland are one of eight nations to make their debut in the finals, along with Haiti, Morocco, Panama, the Philippines, Portugal, Vietnam and Zambia. Is the anticipation building all around the world, but particularly the ones who are ex experiencing all this for the first time? I think there is, from my understanding, is that teams are very excited to, to have participated. All the teams who are participating for the first time seem to be um, chomping at it. Some of them, I think, have been, have been around the edges of, of, of just about this qualification in previous times. But it's it's a big thing. I think it's a big thing for these countries. Um, you will know more than I do what's happening in in Ireland, but hopefully there's a lot of enthusiasm there and excitement there. Is there? Would you say that? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, you know, it's good, and all these things. You know, you might think the same about Ireland. That you know, you'd be very surprised if they won or got near the finals. But even though I think all those teams. Ireland including and, and the other first-time teams all have a chance of launching a surprise, of, beat, of beating teams, of meeting teams who are on their level um, and and maybe qualifying. I think that's, that, that's the aim. Getting out of the group stage, I think, is the aim for a lot of them and a lot of them will be absolutely overjoyed to have made that progression. The girls in green are in a tough group with the hosts Australia, Nigeria and Canada. How do you think we'll do? Oh, I think I do really well. Um, <laughs> uh, it's tough. I think Australia could be. I think Australia, because they are a home nation, and because of the way that Sam Kerr's playing, I think Australia could be kind of a dark horse to do very, very well. Canada have got a good team, so I think Ireland could 
could get, if they can get a good result against Nigeria and um, and maybe get a draw with Canada or something like that, I think you know they could that that might be enough to get them through. And once you get through, who knows? You know, the, who knows what's going to happen? But I think you know, I don't know if you'd agree that that would be the old the the first aim. The first aim is to get through. I think at this stage. Japan's 1-0 win over Germany in Wolfsburg in 2011 was one of the biggest upsets of all time. Do you think we'll see some shocks in Australia and New Zealand? Um, I was going to say, I was going to say, yeah, but I'm, when I look at them, the, the, I'm not sure because the, the, the top teams, the top half a dozen teams look so good now. It's hard to, you know, it depends what you call the shock, I suppose. But, but could I see a small, you know, a small team beating England or Germany or USA? Um, I'm not sure. I'd like to think so. I hope so. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to see Ireland beat Australia, you know, or something like that. You know, that's a shock. I think it'd be great. Um, but... But my fear is that the, the, at the moment things have kind of separated out a bit, and I think we might have to wait a tournament or two before the the levels close up enough for, for um, a massive shock to take place. But it's football; these things happen. I don't want to sound like going to me cliches, but yeah, you know, it's great. There's always a hope that you get get one off someone's backside in the ninetieth minute and. You get a draw and, and you go on from there. So let's hope. How about that? Yeah. It all kicks off on July 20th and you can get the lowdown on all the teams in the history of the Women's World Cup. Where can you buy the book? Um, I think it's, it's mainly available on Amazon, as far as I understand it. That's what I've been told. From, from today, the 15th, from the 15th of May. Thanks, Adrian, for coming in today. Thanks very much and good luck. Good luck to the girls in green. So that was Adrian and our World Cup fanatic women's um, expert. So uh, I'm actually buzzing for this World Cup now, Prop. This is getting me in the mood now. I've Young Hannah is slowly, slowly going to take over from the Prof. It's actually going to be Hannah and Harry, isn't it? It is going to be Harry. Yeah. We're, um, we'll see, Harry might will probably be listening to this and his dad, Al. But uh, we have an idea for... For, for young uh, Harry Moore but we've been touched with him about that but I think that would be cool if like the future were constantly appearing in the podcast because as we just heard Gar the downfall is coming we're going to have a rift yeah which will be irreparable so then stories from the south stand will arise sifties <laughs> sifties so, yeah we had our own Abby Larkin she was at that World Cup trophy tour that Hannah was speaking about there she was an ambassador for the event so the trophy was, was making its way around all the nations and yeah like I, to my internal shame I've not watched a full women's international match I've watched, been watching our games Yeah, I saw I think I saw bits of the night we qualified in Scotland but I have not watched a full international match so looking forward to that in the World Cup yeah it's going to go crack this fellow, uh, Adrian Bessley, is actually a ghost writer. And he has written... Now, when I say he's written a lot of books, I mean he has written a lot of books. So, I'm just going to run through mm-hmm. the titles that this man has published. 
Uh, I'll do the football ones first, and then they get wackier and wackier. <laughs> so, oh, he's, he's got a smorgasbord. <laughs> Slatan Ibrahimovic, the ultimate fan book. Uh, shoot, celebrating the best of the Premier League. Okay. World Football Infographics. And there's a red card one now I'm just looking for. Uh, you're off the Talksport book of red cards. Right, so here's the wacky ones now. YouTube World Records 2024. BTS Icons of K-pop. What's K-pop? That's uh, Korean pop Korean music. Korean pop music, yeah. The Billie Eilish biography. Oh yeah, sirens are starting to go on <laughs> Monty Python's Flying Circus. Uh, more YouTube. Most incredible YouTube videos ever. These are books. These are all books. Most amazing YouTube he, videos he ever. He wrote a book about YouTube videos. Yeah. Do you... Am I the only one who thinks that's fucking ridiculous? <laughs> the Outdoor Book of Adventurous Chaps. That looks like a children's book. So you can't uh, actually... So he's writing a book about YouTube videos. I don't know how that would even work. <laughs> how to fart at school and get away with it. I'm buying that. <laughs> that's right, he's convinced me now. That's another... Uh, the Retrosexual Manual. How to be a real man. This is getting he's, very... He must be bored. <laughs> this is getting very strange. Uh, the Mo Salah Ultimate Fan Book. I forgot that one in my football. The Dangerous Book for for Idiots. Uh, more Billy Eilish. K-pop. More YouTube. Harry Kane Fan Book. Yeah. That is... That's an eclectic mix of books. Absolutely. <laughs> Sirens. <laughs> but yeah, no, we are, we are looking forward to the World Cup Prof. Um, like realistically, Irish people kind of do this whole song and dance about every bandwagon that there is so I think we'll jump on this one because it is it's definitely I'm plus we're hopefully going to have a representative Anya is definitely going to be in the in the squad I'd imagine and young Abby Larkin gets in it'd be Abby brilliant too. if you watch Abby in their games she just seems to have something more than a lot of players yeah. in the league um, but that, that's it Gary. operation put off talking about the game for as long as possible <laughs> uh, we must be must be about 40 minutes in the show at this point yeah we're going to have to talk about the 2-1 loss in draw. Um, in Teleprof, our second defeat of the season and our first loss in 14 games. The team had Hor in for Cleary and Trevor in for Finner. So the build-up to this one, I personally had it in the back of my mind that draw to have our number at times as regards to tactical awareness and they pretty much just parked the bus and they throw bodies on the line. That was This was the oh. ultimate... Trump bodies on the line performance smash and grab no credit full credit to them like especially when you watch back the highlights kind of when you're when you're watching it live and you're invested and you're just looking at what are we doing to create a goal maybe you're not appreciating draw it but especially when I watch back the highlights I yeah. watched them throwing bodies blocking balls literally throwing bodies last yeah. dish tackles I was like that's, that's actually impressive it was impressive yeah. I know he was the probably the best football chat around is the Pride Rings End for content. We can, for football content, it's great for that. The Tifty's mm. B team, WhatsApp group. I like I like when Kind of imploded in the last week. I like when Ben Stafford ships in. Yeah. I was guilty of pretty much analysing the game in the wrong way. Kieran Stafford put me in my place. He said that we did, I, I thought it was a slow start initially, but after watching it back, I was wrong. Put my hands up. But 
Yeah, because there's two goal line clearances the game, in the, in the I, first that's half. That's the thing. Alone. I blame Rob Lavelle for the t- first half. Two goal about line clearances. Chocolate all the time. <laughs> fucking pyro put me off. But I was thinking to myself after watching it back, I was like, yeah, how have we not gotten putting this game to bed in the first half? Some of the chances and some of the defending was just outrageous. It really, really was. It was brilliant defending. Like I you still can't don't think we you could say we played well in the game. The answer is somewhere in between. A lot of people are saying we were absolute muck. We well, thirty shots on goal and a lot of possession, eighty percent possession. We should have put like like the Pico header and a couple of those. There was just a lot of taking too many touches. Yeah, I felt like we were a lot slower. We'll we'll talk about it anyway. Yeah. So the fourth half, well, the build up. Yeah, um, we were in the arena suite instead of the Shannon suite, yeah. which is just like ground level the Maldron. Gary described it like a morgue. It was funny. We had Tommy to our left, uh, Tommy to my left, and you to my right. And you were about to comment on the atmosphere in the room. Huh. And you spoke at the exact same time. But you said the complete opposite things. Tommy was saying he liked it. And you were like, yeah, it's like a morgue, isn't it? Yeah. And he's like, no, actually, I like this. I, I was like, this is terrible. This is fucking awful. It's like, I think Paul McGrath said, it's like being at a funeral of a person you hated. <laughs> I was like, I actually agree. Because it's got, you know, there's no character to it and... It, it, listen it does the job you can sit and have a point but you feel like you're just biding your time and you're like yeah so he was a nice guy yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah yeah, just a, a one point and then episode. I was in profit I had to bring Moya in to do the junior hoops she's well and truly hooked so we had two birthdays Big Al and Neil Ferrugia born the same day Oh, Big Al stuff. turned 41 41 for Big Al um, um, there was a thing where actually not sure if this was pre-match or post-match but Ryan told me this that as the players were coming in to the players entrance or leaving uh, all the kids started mobbing Nugent and calling them Gaffney <sighs> they thought he was Gaffney <laughs> it would, yeah, I'd say just go along with it yeah just go along with it sign it um, uh, we had an Aldra's banner uh, which was an obvious reference to the recent bannings for Pyro so they had they had the word Aldra's but they had a line through a phone and a line through a CCTV sensors covering out two of the letters. Yeah, so there obviously is a bit of back and forth now between the club and the Ulgers and they release a statement um, pretty much condemning wholeheartedly the, the bannings of anyone using pyro and stuff like that. So this is something, it's a tricky one. This is something that... Mm-hmm. I probably won't speak too much on to be honest we'll just skim this one and we'll move on because um, it's tricky because you can understand the close perspective but then again fans getting banned isn't a good thing so it's it's something that I don't think you need to discuss I think this is done behind closed doors probably not for the podcast so um, the players came out to right here right now which I'm told is not the new official club anthem girl murder in the streets we need official club anthem according to every <sighs> meeting we ever have with the members but Prof what about the ice machine the ice machine has been secured thankfully uh, we'll talk about the first half anyway so it, a couple of chances I mean we normally we're shooting into the square and into the new north stand and just bodies everywhere taking balls off the line a couple of shots Jack had a good shot that was palmed mm-hmm. wide the Gaffney one was the first chance. That was that was a goal line clearance. Yeah, he was kind of reaching around. He was played behind them and he had to turn. Hook and manoeuvre himself. He yeah. was unlucky there, yeah. Yeah, he was unlucky. Um, good, good, A couple of good strikes, but 
like I said, these guys just know how to batten down the hatches and hit, like hit us on the break. I thought we like I I don't feel we played well in general in the game. Like second half particularly, I just thought we took too many touches. But the first half hour in the game, some of the link up play between Trevor and Jack was brilliant. They do play well together. So don't they? let's let's give credit there. Yeah. Uh, Jack played a couple of unbelievable crossfield passes to Trevor. The scooped ball was disgusting. Ah, oh, it was disgusting. That. Stop it. But either way, it's look. We did play. We came out playing well. Look, they they defended really well. But I think as the well top of the second half from a while, I felt the second half was we were a little bit lethargic and laboured and slow in our passing. A little bit slower than normal. Plus, mm. it's hard to deal with fucking eleven men, ten men behind the ball. Um, and, it, and it all adds up, doesn't it? it? Especially when you're chasing the game. You're saying we're lethargic in our play. And then we win a corner. And people are giving out a bill waiting for Jack to come across and take the corner. But, I mean, he put in two bad corners all night. The rest were good. So, I don't yeah. know. What's the point in picking on Jack Byrne? True. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But then there's all these other stoppages, which we'll speak about later. But it, it all adds up to momentum killing. Dark arts. Yeah, it did. It really did. Probably agree mm. with you. And uh, it even started in the first half. But we're going to talk about the first... Goal, 44 minutes, absolutely horrific time to concede a goal. But hey, on our, the counter again. We, um, our golden goal winner, nice 350 pop prof, little little fist. <clears throat> so he's officially blacklisted. I won't name and shame him. Not even going to describe what Gary's doing there. He, get, he gave the nod. Yes. He was like, yep, yeah, that's me. I was like, you yeah, fucking miserable bastard. You were 1-0 down. Um, one, so a long ball pumped up. I'm going to say that it was possibly naivety from the... Pico and Hor, maybe they doubted the ability of this guy. To Pico didn't look too concerned. Pico, like Pico was, Pico did the right thing. He dropped off yeah, and yeah, he yeah. doubled up. Whereas Hor, I think Hor just kind of got spun around and turned inside out. I thought like, Hor was in control of the situation. That's exactly what I thought. But I genuinely think that we might have been a little bit naive and we didn't give this guy the respect he possibly deserved. Or does he respect? Does he respect? I don't know. But we doubted his ability. It was like, they were like, ah, he's not going to score from here. Gave him a bit of space, he turned inside and he buried it with his left. I think possibly that might have been the case. They just thought, it's right, we'll jockey this fella and then we'll we'll take the ball off. And then he did that. So It's a superb finish. It's a brilliant, brilliant uh, finish. Draper on loan from, from Lincoln and in fairness, he buddies the centre-backs all night. <laughs> like, how many players in this league, if any, can buddy Pico Lopez? I know, yeah. It's it's it was a battle all night. I mean, it was a very very hard one to take, and so, especially that that time. Oh. Did you notice the comments from Doherty saying that? Um, they know that we we leave one man back. Is he referring to this goal or the second goal? But you know, like from corners now, we leave Fruja back. Yeah, and we have been hit by attacking our own corners sometimes. And this was the case. But for this that goal, goal, this goal was was a punt, as you say. But it was from us attacking and being forward. But yeah. in saying that, you've Horn, you've Pigo, and there's one guy on two of them. You're you're putting your mortgage on Pigo and Hard to be victorious there and, and yeah. take the ball out and just start pushing on again. But uh, going in at halftime, one nil down and a kick in well, the teeth. Well, that was absolute shock. I mean, the stadium was just jaw dropped. Because it's a bit of magic, though. It's a bit of individual yeah. brilliance. Yeah. What can you do? Both goals are absolutely yeah. quality goals. Um. um yeah, so the second goal, unfortunately in a way, because it comes only a few minutes after we reshuffle. Now, I see people wondering, 
what is what is this substitution? So he brings on Johnny Kenny, and who came off for Kenny? It was an odd one. I'm trying to remember now, but uh, Gary O'Hara and Gary O'Neill goes to centre back. But mid positional change, yeah, they started this. So did Gary O'Neill forget to step in? Was it? It looked like Gary O'Neill was just up where he normally is, and the whole change of structure in the team was happening while they were hitting us on the break mm. and the guy so you had um, the starts twi- with Kenny losing the ball I mean you're going way back at the start of the move yeah so it's it's a bit ridiculous because it's an unbelievable one touch move and finish yeah but if you want to go all the way back we lose the ball to begin with and then we a ball whipped out to number 21 I can't remember his name again but I didn't actually think he was that good all night and then he does this the ball number 21 whips in a ball but this is where Gary O'Neill was up the pitch getting I think they were in the middle of the transition and the tactical change so he was probably just getting into position be two at the back at one stage I, was, mm-hmm. I stood beside me and I, was, I think it was Lavelle I said it to I was like we, we got fucking two at the back here <laughs> so I don't know who's going centre half Horror's gone off Kenny's on Gary O'Neill is still in the middle of the park and then you could see Gary O'Neill running back and you could see the massive gap where 21 swings it in and it's a super finish from Dale Rooney who always plays well against us. Brilliant finish, 2-0 up and there's nothing you can do about it's it. It's an unbelievable goal from start to finish it's though. It's a brilliant, brilliant goal. It the really is. football was, it was very impressive. But we were, like that doesn't happen that often where you're caught in the yeah. hop like that. I personally, I, like, I still think that we were playing well enough and I mean the the stats say, say, say so but... And here we are, we've been in this situation a few times already this season. Yeah. We've been two goals behind. But and funnily enough, at half time when you know the usual crack at the back of the south stand, so you go down and you'd be having the chats with all the lads, and I just thought confident. Possibly cocky. I possibly was cocky. I was like, ah, we're gonna score. But this time our luck right now, there's only so many times you can give teams two goal leads and tally. <laughs> yeah. And then your luck runs out. And just it wasn't happening first this game. We got we get the get the Rory goal to pull it back but even before the Rory goal we actually had loads of chances <sighs> the Pico header I, mean, I don't know if it was before or after but that's, that's a I think sitter, the Pico man. header was a 2-1 it was 2-1 but yeah. that's a sitter but even before Rory's goal we had uh, we had Richie and Berkey oh Richie man like Richie's goal was a pullback from I think it was a Frugia and he just gets over it. late run Richie again he has to keep that down and you he can see to... you can see himself he's disgusted Richie in the form that he's in now buries that I don't know it's so like it's yeah, it's so frustrating. I thought you would at least hit the target. Berkey as well. It was a bit more of a difficult one, but he got under it. Yeah, and yeah, I think Tell actually had another chance then. Um, yeah. So eventually the goal comes, Gar. Yeah, uh, so seventy nine minutes. Rory Gaffney. Rory Gaffney. Um, yeah. So it is um stabbed home by Gaffney. A good chance. And again, Ferruja involved. Ferruja like involved Ferugia again. Is Performances the last two or three games, bit of a mixed bag, well, but often he's involved in their goals. But like I said, Prof, you make the great point that, like I, like I said, anyone who is upset with this defeat, you can understand that. But we've been brilliant all season. I think a couple of a dodgy patch at the start with the draws and stuff like that, but we're always creating. It'd be different if we weren't. Hmm. Sometimes it just doesn't go your way. Tonight, the, the draw of the game was one of those nights. It literally like they were valiant defensive performances from them. A true bodies on the line. They really, really did. They play, they played as a team. But with this situation, 
you, like you said, we're creating chances, and I'm not too upset about it. Obviously, I don't like losing, but well, I'm very I'm concerned about Col- how many goals we're conceding at home. Yeah, yeah. That, to me, that's top of the list now, in terms of what are my worries. How do you delve into that issue? What is well, how the do you explain it? We we have five clean sheets away in succession. Maybe it's just a blip. Maybe you don't try and overanalyze it and explain it, and you just get your head down and work hard. Possibly one of those things. Well, Gaffney, I was tracking the Gaffney stat because I I noticed that his 100th league goal in his career was coming up. So this is England and Ireland. And I've actually miscounted because there was a bit of a dispute over one season at Limerick in 2012. Uh, uh, He hadn't been credited for one of the goals. So this was actually his 101st league goal of his career. So... His landmark, whatever that was, the Bowes game, that was actually his one hundred. Yeah. No way. League and it was league career. Still um, under the radar. So at the end of the game, we were obviously pushing for the equaliser. At one stage, Jack makes a surging run and decides to left fly himself, which he really does, and didn't. But I actually, was, I thought that myself. I was like, yeah. just taking a shot. <laughs> it wasn't. A, it wasn't a clean strike, but the keeper had to get a hand on it and push yeah. it out. That was like ninety three minutes. The referee adds on seven. Like, we'll Personally, it. I. I thought it should have been more. We'll talk about the time, Mason. We have a lot to say about that. And, yeah, the Pigo header. I think everyone on the ground, I think all three stands were like, we were built to celebrate. It was like, this is in. It's not our night. When Pigo misses yeah. something like that, it's not your night. I mean, he, he got up and it was perfect. Nobody around him, into the ground. It was a perfect Pigo opportunity. It just didn't happen for us. It's one of those things. And yeah. when that when that didn't go in, I just thought, right, it's done. We move on and we'll, we'll focus on the next game. Yeah, Trevor. Trevor injury ten minutes ago as well. Not good. Looked bad. Didn't look good. He was walked around, off in yeah. the end. But we'll find out hopefully because that's someone that's been absolutely brilliant for us this season since he's came back on loan. And uh, in particular with Turner's cross, I'd love to see him on that big pitch. Out Remember there. that goal he scored? Definitely. Twenty seventeen. That's, that's what I'm thinking. So in terms of our subs, uh, he left Poom on Green on the bench. Yeah. Green isn't one for chasing the game, I don't think. But then again, mm. he brings you something different. Kenny struggled when he came on. Probably Green was perfect ball. to preserve our lead yeah. against Sligo. I think in, in a situation like this, when you when you need when when there's bodies on the line like that and they're throwing all sorts in front of you, Green mm. have possibly been a good one because uh, Kenny didn't really touch the ball and didn't do much. I think it was four or five touches overall. You know, he couldn't get into the game in the space of a half an hour. So I find this fascinating that people can't agree on their tempo in this game. Like, Brazzer came out and said he was very happy to tempo. Now, I know Brazzer in the media, he may have to put a positive spin yeah. a little bit here and there. But I think he's being genuine there. Like, mentioned Ben Stafford in the Rings Ends chat. He felt he played at good tempo. Yeah. You ask a lot of other people to keep saying, no, slow, 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 slow. I, th- I think it was more, I think as we grew into the second half, what grew is probably the wrong word, as we continued into the second half I felt that we weren't quick enough and they it was all down to how they defended personally they got banks of men behind the wall and they didn't give us the chance or the spaces to play the game that we play Hmm. and they were putting men in there like I've never seen before so when you think of it and you analyse it like that it's brilliant defensive performance from them Hmm. and they just had our number as regards to that and you count all the mess and the dark arts and the time wasting it's a snatch and grab for them. Yeah, I didn't ask Brazzer post match, but 
I don't know if he believes in the, in the in a bogey team, but at this stage, I mean, it's five league games we had to win against them. Yeah. Uh, six, we haven't beat them in 90 minutes. It was a late cup win. They just have a number for whatever reason. I saw yeah. them described as a, as a nuisance on Robert's chat. That's a good word. What is it about Drogheda? I don't know, but the time wasting girl. Yeah, it's embarrassing, oh really. It's so like, bad, Harvey, isn't it? we saw the best and the worst of Harvey here. He did the, the Daily Mount Derby, didn't he? Yeah. And he did this one. Why, like, I know the crowd are getting on his back early on and we're saying why the keeper's taking ages from, like, the half-hour mark or whatever. But just the, the booking never comes for the for the goalkeeper. Just, oh, is that a point so now poor. where are we better off knocking on the referee's back because they they will not give us anything in Tala with time ways. Yeah, you got so much wrong. It's it, it's nuts, and I I was thinking to myself, there's no way it could get any worse. The performances that have been in the league from the referees, and it, it just does. It keeps getting worse. It's it's fever fever pitch or fever pitch breaking boiling point. This seems now you could go back to Shelburne. And uh, Connor Carnes obviously came in for stick with his mysterious eye injury and all that. Like <laughs> Shelburne, I said it on the podcast, and like our two best times in that game where we had the most momentum, that's when two Shelburne players went down injured. Yeah, and it was almost the same in this game. It was when we had the most momentum. All suddenly the defender feels a twinge in the leg. The goal. There's no one around them. It's not a tackle. It's just like oh. Goalkeeper goes in his back and needs treatment, you know. McCabe is a I mean, new hate figure as well. Yeah. Absolutely. But I don't uh, want to go on a bit of too much, but it's it's becoming a massive turn off for me in general, football. The the dark arts. But just to like where where does it end? Can players just drop down the pitch when the other teams are on top of them? Yeah. And just waste time. I know, it's ridiculous. But prof, we'll move on. No, God, God no we're not moving on uh, oh, the stats on. move on please well they're not stats but I mean don't give me stats on <laughs> eight shots on target today are three they scored two of those 21 to 5 off target so we didn't really have our shooting boost on it'd be 79% possession uh, that's the most domination we've had in total the season 14 corners to one their keeper makes seven saves Um. And like it's a mental result on paper, wasn't it? Because we'd won nine out of ten, they'd hadn't won in seven. Um, we were undefeated in fourteen. It was our first defeat in fourteen league games, so the form guide made no sense. Which obviously, Garrett then brings out the Ferdinand Gamblers. This oh, don't forget, draw to be Derry in Branywell. They hadn't won since then. Yeah, so they are able. And what did I say mm. in the last show? I said, there's no way Drogheda will come up to Tala and beat us in the form that they're in. Oh, I wish you hadn't said that. My God. I can't believe it. Just listen back to it. I was like, oh, gosh, shut your mouth. So when this happens, Gar, whereas Rawers or whether it's anyone in the League of Ireland, the Farden Gamblers, the <laughs> they come out in their droves. And this one came in into our Twitter all the way from Ghana. Your lost yesterday... Made me see my potential $1,200 disappeared into thin air. So sad. I would have to start all over again before I can afford that gaming laptop. <laughs> well, Mr. Person from Ghana, maybe don't gamble yeah. and save your money and buy the laptop that way. 
because you've obviously not taken into account bogey clubs, of which Drogheda certainly are. Yeah. I was telling you that I'm looking into our best and worst runs against clubs. Yeah. Thinking of doing a program article about it. And I discovered that we once went 17 games without beating Derry until the mid-90s. No, you were telling me that. Isn't that crazy? I was saying that must have been the tail end from the tour or the trainer or the, the treble team, was it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah. Uh, rotten Bra- stuff, Prof. Brazzers 300 game. But nothing to celebrate, unfortunately. Yeah, so we have Maloney with the stats, Prof. By my calculations, we have conceded more goals at home this year than UCD. For the whole of last season's league campaign, we conceded 10 goals at home, but already this year we have let in 15. On only two occasions last year did we concede two goals at home, but it's happened six times already in 2023. That is ridiculous. Yeah, his calculations are correct, Gar. Yeah, Olsund and Doc have the worst defensive home record. 15 conceded UCD of 14. Jesus Christ. That's uh, nuts, man. It's um, first win in Tata. Since 2014, that even includes the B team 2020. They couldn't be them in Tally either. So, long time yep. since they won Tally. Uh, Trent Hill from America has followed Rovers since 2010. Saw us play live for the first time on Friday. Great post by him on the Rovers chat. Oh, Did you read that? No, I didn't see it. That oh, was very, very good. Oh, this yeah. is the guy that was coming over. Yeah. He's, he's a member as well, isn't he? I'm not sure if he's a member, but someone asked him, How did you get interested? And he said he's from. Uh, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, way yeah, down this south. Yeah, the guy, yeah. And he says, I live in the States and the nearest MLS team was four and a half hours away, so he had no local club. My family on both sides is Irish descended. Grandfather was a huge Celtic fan. And amongst his things, I found a number of Shamrock Rovers items. Ah. Turns out he visited Dublin in the 70s and saw Rovers live. So I figured what I figured I'd see what all the hoopla was about. Hoopla. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. Uh, Brazzer and Kieran Westwood, Prof. We spoke to him a few weeks back and we've had good conversations. We're just waiting to see as he has a few personal things at home that he's looking after. All that needs to work for something to be done. So going forward, we know it's Alan's last year and we need to plan for that. And he's a keeper of real pedigree. Alan is obviously going to retire and we've been looking at five or six goalkeepers for the last year. So Kieran is a top goalkeeper, but a lot of things have to fall into place for that to be a possibility. It's 50-50 at the moment. He's unattached and in the short term, that is key. He has to be out of contract since January for them to be able to register for us now and play in the short term. So long term, that doesn't matter too much. Kieran has had offers from Scotland and lower leagues in England in the last while. They haven't been quite right for him. A lot needs to fall into place for that to happen, but Stephen Mack and the board have been working on it. Um, It's a tricky one because mm. we have had this looming over us for a long time now with this potential goalkeeper crisis. And um, Kieran Westwood, by all accounts, top pro, loads of caps, loads of player of the year for Sheffield Wednesday, I think 2014, 2015. He is uh, a target of ours, possibly number one. So be interesting to see what happens. Cause well, this clarity came out shortly after we recorded the podcast and we were doubting whether he was being looked at as a long-term option. We were, yeah. we were talking about him being a short-term, but no, apparently we're talking 18 months here. So my thoughts on it? Is that he is going to be alongside Alan Manis for the next couple of weeks. So let's say we do sign him. He plays in goal for the eight or ten weeks. I feel I feel Bradshaw will stay loyal to Alan Manis and he will put him back in the team. And then Kieran West will possibly play alongside him. And then if we don't have anyone signed, Kieran Westwood will continue on after Alice, Alan Manis is gone. 
um, deputised while we do find a long term replacement McGinty's still getting, not getting his game over in yeah, Oxford I mean, there's, there's so much going on so whatever about um, if we had to play Leon for the first uh, Champions League qualifying round we obviously can't go into Europe with one senior goalkeeper if there's even a minute chance that Al's finger won't be healed by then we need another keeper there's absolutely no reason to rush him in. Plus, he has to think about himself as well. He knows he's retiring. He's going to be thinking, I don't want to have any sort of pain or issues when I'm retiring and going into coaching as well. So he's not going to rush himself back because he knows it's at the end of at the end of his contract. Mm. So, um, yeah. So uh, we a bit more on Al Denger. Yeah. According to Brady, it's still too early to know if Manus will miss the start of Shamrock Rovers European camp campaign in July. Alan will be four weeks from this week until he sees a specialist again and then a decision will be made on where it is out of the hoops boss. It's all about how it sets right now once in a splint and it's about how the bones set. Once the splint is off it's fairly straightforward. The, um, and pushed on Manus' availability for Europe Bradley added there's nothing we can do we have to wait there's no point in worrying about it it's a waiting game. Surgeon and doctor said this week was the time frame and we're looking at four weeks but more than likely he'll be fine after that which is a little bit better than what I thought it'd be Prof in saying that mm-hmm. it's been two weeks since since it happened and Brazzer quotes on former Moldovan underage international keeper Maxim Raylin Raylian actually because our resident Khishinov um, do we have a resident in Moldovan we have a resident in Moldovan in work do we yeah John no John the cleaner alright yeah so John was telling me all about it he was get Rallyen was the pronunciation. So uh, he's 23 on trial and impressed with the 19s. Apparently he is impressed as well. So Max has been training with us, said Bradzer. He's been playing and living in Germany. He was with us last year and we kept in touch with him. He has been in training with us. He's our contract since January, which is what we need. So the goalkeeper has limited first team experience, have played a dozen or so Moldovan Super League matches for Svintul Georgia with his most recent appearance coming in May 2022 when he started away against Sheriff Tiraspol, the Giants of Moldovan football. So, so those are the rules, isn't it? It has to be out of contract since July. Interesting stuff, Prof. Um, mm. we'll, I'm not worried about it. I'm just gonna we'll let it happen, let it develop, and then that is it. It's too much for us to be worrying about. Other results, prof. Cork won Sligo nil, and I got this one right in the prediction league. I, I I'm loving this. I'm, this prediction league is great, crack. So I was looking at it and I was thinking Cork. They they struggle. They're struggling. Sligo are struggling. I said the Cork are gonna get a disgusting scruffy win here. One nil, ten points in the bag. Bucko against his old club. Bucko against his old club. That factored into it as well. Um, lovely finish as well from Rory Keaton. Very, very good. Looking good again. Prof, I had him in the fancy football. He got me a couple of points. Derry 4, UCD 1, standard. I had this down for 3 mm. nil. Um st- Standard 4-1 four, four, win. Now it's being changed to Derry nil, UCD 3. Because they meant 6 subs. 6 subs, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Dundalk 2, Bowes 2. After Bowes went 2-0 down in 30 minutes with another Talbot Howler. And off the bar in off his Weedabix back. Um, I had this for two one Dundalk, and they were doing me a favour up and up until um the equaliser. So two two Dundalk about Shelbourne nil Pats one Pats coming away from Talca Park with a one 0 win, which is uh extremely hard, tough to do. So a good win for Pats out there, and um yeah, that's the roundup for the game. Just gone problem. Barry Cotter is in a playoff final in Wembley. Have you noticed that? I don't think he's played a minute of football. 
Because you know you check up on hoops. No, I actually haven't checked on him. No, I, I genuinely don't think. He put up a picture of him in a Barnsley jersey and I was thinking to myself, he have, is he playing the, the playoff? Mm. Didn't even get so off the bench. So they don't really, really like him? I don't, I don't know if he gets a game or not, but he's, he's on live score, he's not getting games. Um, the Sheffield Wednesday comeback this game was nuts, right? So losing 4-0 down, 4-0 down from the fourth leg. And it goes to four 0 so extra time. They concede. They score again. Well, the fourth goal was in like the ninety third, ninety seventh minute. minute or oh, something like that. Yeah. It was nuts. The and scenes I was, was. I was watching it with Jay, and he he was like, "These are gonna score." Very vibrant atmosphere in the ground. Vibrant girl. atmosphere. Vibrant. He was saying, "These are gonna score." I says, oh, "This is gonna happen." So we were jumping around like Wednesday fans in the house <laughs> purely because of the occasion that was in it. And you know, I knew Peterborough would, would score next. Did you, yeah? For whatever reason, it's just, it's just, I felt it. Cause Lara had ordered a curry, and I'm there like, "Do you order that for collection?" She's like, "Yeah." She's like, "You gotta leave now." I was like, oh. <laughs> "Like Jane, FaceTime, FaceTime." Mounted the, mounted the, mounted the video, or mounted the phone. We're watching the panels as we drive along. Gonna collect the curry, golden bamboo. Um, mental scenes, mental scenes. Barry Bannon mm. is one of my favorite footballers. He shouldn't be in League One. I think he's a Celtic fan little Scottish fella reminds me of Jack blonde hair beard little small fella low centre of gravity he's fucking deadly Barry Bannon is brilliant how sick would you be if you, if you don't win this on penalties in the end apparently sick. Wednesday fans chanting you're not singing anymore you can, you can just imagine there's a Maloney fan in there somewhere just them. fucking idiots fucking idiots shut up um, yeah, just, so just a quick note on the first division. Um, I just wanted to say it amuses me how people think the first division is over. Do you know why? Why? I know Galway are way in front. It's ten points. It's not that much. This is Galway. We're talking about Galway United FC. They have won nothing for thirty-two years. Cork started once like this and collapsed. No, I agree with you. That's why I'm not taking too much notice of it. Um, this is not over. No, I know. No, I, agree. I think they will win it, but why? Why do they need to call it? Mm. Like, oh, it's over. I agree with you. It's bro. not over. Nowhere near over. Yeah. Look, look where we are in the league. There's so many games to play. It's nuts. Um, yeah. So Rovers now know all their potential opponents in the draw for the Champions League first round. Prof. Lincoln Red Ibs of Gibraltar. Ki Klaxvik of the Faroes. A Champions League preliminary round winner, Dynamo Tbilisi of Georgia, Rakow of Poland, Aris Limassol of Cyprus, Farul Constanta of Romania, the Albanian League champions, Vamerias of FK Latvia, FC Balkani of Kosovo. I want to go with Kosovo, prof. Always. <laughs> that was imprinted in my mind growing up uh, because it was war torn. I always remember Kosovo. I'm on Team Ferros. Uh, Larn. Absolutely need them. They actually lost two of their players, Brent Graham Kelly and Fudsule, all looking at going abroad. Uh, Armenian champions, Hamrun Spartans of Malta, Prof is gunning for this one. Swift Esperange of Luxembourg and FC Struga from Macedonia. So, one of these places, Prof. Yeah, and Lauren has been confirmed they need an alternative, uh, alternative venue for Europe. They can't use the wrong ground, so... We could be going to Windsor Park on July 12th. Imagine. Imagine. A few European notes. Do you remember um, From Dust Till Dawn? The remake. And they're in the shopping mall. The original From Dust Till Dawn is in a shop mall. And the remake is just as good, actually. Believe it or not. Do you mean Dawn the Dead? 
Yes, from Dusk Till Dawn is the vampire one. Yeah. Just as good as well, actually. So Dawn the Dead, they're inside the, the shopping mall and then they go out and they make a bus and they armour the bus. Yeah, that was dead. That's the bus we need. That's the bus we need for Limp Bizkit. <laughs> That's a great movie, wasn't that? This I like remake. that you're comparing Nordies with zombies. Yeah. Um, Gary Brennan points out that next year's Europa League final is in Dublin. And he was saying, wouldn't it be brilliant if we had something like Roma or Juventus? Ah, oh, it'd be deadly, actually. Roma versus Juventus that. in the final. Compared to last time, uh, 2011, Porto? I think it was, Porto and Braga. Yeah. Like, that's that's a brutal final. Yeah. Um, that Thursday, you were talking about watching Sheffield Wednesday. You had all the European semi-finals on at the same time. It was, it was hard to know what to watch. Yeah, yeah. So much football on, or whether to go to a member's town hall. And deal with important issues like uh, ice machines and club anthems. But Garrett, we have an Italian team in all three finals. And none of my Juventus. It's been a while, isn't it? Roma, Roma are gradually... So they won the Conference League and then they're in the Europa League final now. Who are they playing in the Europa League final? Is West Ham? Roma? Yeah. They're playing Sevilla. Sevilla. And who... who so Roma has Sevilla. And West, West Ham, Ham versus Fiorentina. Fiorentina? That's, those are good games, man. I, I, I remember the they have a fellow up front for them the little Brazilian uh, God Cabral unbelievable player he's going to run the show there I remember the stat because I was writing a little roundup in the programme of the Conference League group stages where it was leading into the last two two match days and I remember writing the stat and it's actually coming to pass Fiorentina are the first club to reach all four European finals Four, so they've no, gone no one else is well obviously the Conference League is Fiorentina on. the Conference League is only gone two seasons but I wouldn't guess that one now they're the first ones to do it Um, yeah West Ham Fiorentina in the final still waiting on Fielder to see McAniff because their season has finished now in Perth but West Ham are coming to Perth in July so maybe they could parade the Conference Trophy McAniff will play Fielder will go and now I'll get my program piece and Nolsey Nolsey will we'll, we'll protect everyone They'll bring him in the king's chair <laughs> yeah I mean a big fucking chair so Prof the Duffer fella was ranting hey, now as much as we take the piss out of him um, possibly rant is probably a harsh word there just made a lot of sense yeah um, yeah he did yeah so clauses agents taking the piss and destroying the league I think he's uh, he's good to have because sometimes these things need to be said and he's going to say them yeah, and you don't want to be the guy to say it at times, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think McDonald was calling him a, an effective voice because of who he is. That works. Um, he didn't mention trials, which is my pet fee- pet peeve, but I think he's implying that with trials, part of the overall thing, disrespecting us with fees and and all that. The clauses. It is. They come over and they just think Paddy will take whatever we give them. I know we we lost Danny Mendryu. From uh, a clause of what was it, thirty grand? No, that was our own fault, though. But that was in the first place. I, I can't see that happening again. But, um, um, no, no, Duffer made a lot of sense. Um, didn't say anything new or groundbreaking, but yeah, hopefully people pay attention now. Yeah, but everybody needs to band together and say, okay, this is how it works now. We're yeah. our own independent bodies. We stand on our own yeah. two feet, and let's not sell for little or nothing. Robbers themselves will not bring up the transfer fees for Irish players we might do it very very slowly over years but mm. the whole league have to get together yep. and demand respect because I'm just it's madness like these countries similar sizes to us getting 
three, five, seven, eight million transfer Literally. fees. Literally, mad money. And we, yeah. we, we do a jig when we get half a million. <laughs> yeah, a jig. <laughs> so rumours of Spurs signing Gambazuno, 15 million for Southampton. Um, bit of a debate in the last few days, Prof. Um, Bazuno and 56 goals conceded in 30 odd games, saying that he's the reason. Mm. Threw the ball into his net more times than anything. I'd but the expected goals, girl. The XG. I can't stand this, man. I can't stand it. I don't even look at it. Don't even look at it. Someone literally made that up, and now it's a thing. Someone sat there and said, "I'm gonna, we're gonna make this up, totally fabricated, and now people actually go by it." I don't listen to it. I don't look at it at all. XG, no. Well, I will hold my hands up. I'm a bit old-fashioned, but I like my stats in black and white. Yeah. Things that I can measure. Well, 100% These accuracy. are potential stats. That's all stats they? I like. Potential stats. Yeah. So the women beat DL always 4-3 in a tell on Saturday. Having gone a goal behind early 4-1. Half time, so... A, 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 prof, this is a humdinger, a slobber knocker of a game. Yeah, well, the, the ladies were in total control at the break. 4-1. And then ends up being too close for comfort. It um, got a bit tricky, didn't I it? I was trying to watch back the, the first... DLR Waves goes up on nine. Uh, I couldn't find the other two because yeah. actually all three were good goals from them. Yeah, yeah. And so our goals came from Savannah McCarthy getting her first for the club. Uh, Jess Garrigan shipping in with her goal of the season. So she's getting goals from defence. Yes. So it was Abby Larkin's great ball in for the first goal. And then Abby herself got the score sheet after a big scramble in the box. I don't know how this ended up in the net. But great, massively entertaining great, yeah, game, Prof. Great great play by Leah on the wing for that goal. Um, she's in great form. She turned 17 recently, by the way, so we can't call her 16 anymore. And Alana McAvoy got through on goal and a nice one-on-one finish for 4-1. But yeah, then the other, the other way has got two. And Squeaky bump time, Prof. Uh, so, so now we've played every team in the league and remained unbeaten. Oh, we're loving it. And we have Galway next at home, who are flying actually. Yeah. They're up in the top three. And finally, on the women, uh, Stephanie Roche was on cold comms. So, doing a bit of commentary there, Stephanie, or Stephanie Zamber, to say. Mm. And the draw for the All Ireland competition was made. And Rovers women went into Group B, tough group. Wexford Hughes, Glen Thorne, P Mount. Ouch, that's a tough one, Prof. Confident though, confident we so get out of it. That will kick off on June eighteenth. So the match days will be June eighteenth, twenty fifth, July second, semi final, July ninth, final, July sixteenth, and so that's a few days before the World Cup starts. Yes, that's it on the ladies, but Prof pre uh, DLR. 4-3 Tonker of a game there was a Junior Hoops event meet and greet Collie O'Neill walking through the dressing room with the whole um, set up and it was absolutely brilliant well done to Bill Gleason Siobhan Paul all the guys at the Junior Hoops who pretty much blew it out of the water again with a brilliant brilliant day and um, Collie was brilliant apparently he answered every question no matter how daft it was Collie's a gent so yeah brilliant stuff again and a great little walk around for all of our junior hoops and uh, there's some mountain prof so yeah the academy prof academy results that men's 17s were beating 1-0 at home to Galway Galway have our number 5-0 last yep. week I had to double check that scoreline I was like did that really happen 
15s, 5 0 win at home to Club Kildare, and the uh, women's 19s beat DLR Ways 4 3 at the academy. The women's 19s won 4 3, and their senior team. That's bad, mental. Yeah. And the women's 17s lost 3 1 away to Shelbourne. So, two Rovers players in the score sheet again for Ireland under 17s. 3 0 win over Wales. Nadge with a penalty rebound. Ike with a stunner to make it 2 0. Ike with uh, a superb, lovely, curled goal top corner. And uh, Nadge missed one penalty already, but missed the second one, but the stroked the home with his goal left. was actually the third one, though, wasn't it? <sighs> Unbelievable. Romeo Okachukwu. Yeah. What a strike. <laughs> Unbelievable strike. Yeah. So their, their last game will be Hungry on Tuesday. We're recording here a bit early in the week, Monday. So we don't know the result of that yet. So they need to, to win that game to have any hope of going through. We have the Glenmalore final. On Wednesday, so this this show will be coming out Wednesday morning, so we we, we got it out in time. So that's a uh, White Hall. Uh, check out Glenmalore, support them for their first final. Uh, Maloney, by the way, not impressed with Pat Tuhi with his comment that they're not a Rovers supporters team. Really? Because he says the three managers are Rovers fans and a number of the players are Rovers fans. Therefore, they pretty much are a Rovers supporters team. <sighs> Civil War before unrest before the final. Yeah. Well, that's he actually accosted me about it. He sent me three <laughs> voice notes and Tutty's like, "No, nah, we're standing on our own two feet." I was like, "Wooly, Tutty, Maloney, uh, like Andrew Kelly, all Rovers fans." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but either way, it doesn't matter. It's only a small little detail, but um, brilliant for the lads. Two finals, one on Saturday. Details to come and um, one on Wednesday, so big one on Wednesday. Has the been decided for I the think it's the VC, possibly Saturday? 12 or 2 o'clock kickoff. Keep an eye on our yeah. socials and Glenmore socials. But big, big week for uh, Glenmore Rovers. They're going down the professional route and all. They'll be decked out in suits and the bus. It'll be a brilliant, brilliant moment for a great club. So check them out. All right, lads. Um, Wooly here, just giving you an update on the final, which is happening Wednesday night, uh, Wednesday 24th in Home Farm. Glenmore Rovers play in their first final, which is a final of the MMI Cup. Um, we are playing Fairview Celtic, who are a league above us in the UCFL. Uh, both teams come in in good form. Fairview, in particularly good form, they uh, they won their league um, and they performed particularly well. Uh, I don't think they lost the game in the league, um, but recently they were beaten in a. Another cup semi-final by a team, Livorno Carpenters Town, who we've played uh, three times this year. Uh, we've won twice and lost once. So, look, we think we have a chance. Um, we came through our semi-final against St Mary's. We won the game 2-1. The scoreline suggests it was tighter than it was. Uh, we had a number of opportunities to put the tight to bed, but uh, great goalkeeping from the St Mary's goalkeeper uh, kept it at the minimum. Um, we're lucky we have a full squad to pick from for the game on Wednesday um, we have a number of players in serious form uh, Shane Hanrahan Nathan O'Reilly are in really good form uh, so too is Dan O'Brien and Owen Leonard and uh, centre half pairing of Colin Seary and Josh Quigley are doing really well and uh, John Gibbons in goal is in fine form too as he has been all season so Look, we're confident of a big performance uh, if our shape is right uh, and the lads put in a serious shift. I think uh, the game is there for us, but they just have to go out and do it. Um, now that's what finals are for. They're for going out to win. So, look, any support we can get on Wednesday 
would be brilliant. Um, the more people there, the better. It's nearly a local game for Fairview because we're only down the road. So we're hoping to get as many fans and supporters across as we can um, just to give the lads a lift and put them in the best possible position to win the game. So, look... Um, really excited for it now and I think the lads are as well we train on Monday night and the guys are excited for it, for the game and I think they're looking forward to it more so than than, than nervous about it but um, a lot of us around the, cl- around the club butterflies in the stomach so hopefully they can get it done because they've had a long year they've worked hard and I think a bit of silverware at the end of it would be uh, would be a just reward for, for everybody involved so Hopefully we can do it. Please, God. So, Prof, we're going for a quiz. It is Monday. So, Monday trivia, not Tuesday Monday trivia. trivia. yeah. But I have it here in front of me. Prof's going to mm-hmm. set the, the, t- the clock for two. Set I'm going to... timer now. Hey, deep breath. going to do Wim Hof. Enjoy, enjoy this, Gert. <coughs> considering a little... Uh, Wim Hof. I tried cold water there. Cold water treatment there recently, Prof. And it is hell. I don't know why people do these things themselves. I can't. I don't. I don't know why. And it wasn't even an ice bath. It was a cold shower because I forgot. Okay, I went to the gym. Forgot to turn the heating on, and I said, "Right, it's cold. I'll get do what the kids are doing." No. No. Not happening. Never again. So here we go. It is the quiz. Enjoy Two minutes man, because I'm on. considering a little Tuesday trivia holiday after this. Oh yeah. I might have a little break. <laughs> so. Uh, go go well Drada's win on Friday was their first Premier Division victory in Tallis since which man was in charge of Rovers Michael O'Neill Stephen Kenny Trevor Crowley Pat fell in 2014 so I will say Trevor Crowley correct oh yes who was Rovers assistant manager to Crowley in the 2013 season John Gill Colin Hawkins Stephen Glass Tony Cousins I remember John Gill bouncing around John Gill no Hawkins oh he was bouncing around somewhere wasn't he Three, which of these teams have beaten Rovers in a competitive game talent in Stephen Bradley's time as manager? Have beaten. So, UCD, Shells, Pats, none of them. Pats haven't, Pats haven't beaten us. Shells. I'll say none of them. I knew you'd go for that. Pats B is in a League Cup match. Ah, for who wrote the 1993 book The Hoops with Robert Goggins? Paul Doolan, Jimmy Keane, Christy Fenlon, Paul Weaver. Oh my God. Paul Doolan. Correct. Yes. Five. Which of these stadiums was the venue for Rovers Europa League qualifier in Hungary last year? Hufarma Arena, Stadium Care, Galamco Arena and Goop Ama Arena. I'm going to say Galamco. Sounds really familiar. Galamco. Galamco was Ghent. Goop oh, Ama Arena. Yeah, prof special. Which team did Rovers beat in 2020 FAI Cup semi-finals? This is which, tricky, I think. Which team did Rovers beat to get it? Sligo, Bowes, Dundalk, Finn Harps. Finn Harps up there. Mental game with all the penals. That was the quarters. Sligo was the answer. Do you remember that, man? That was a mad game. Uh, Seven clubs from Sweden, Norway, and which other country have been our most frequent European opponents with three? Cyprus, Cyprus, Finland, Denmark, Italy. Oh, Cyprus, Finland, Denmark, Finland. Uh, It has to be Cyprus. Correct. Yes. Who scored his fourth goal of the season by netting? Open goal of a 3-1 win at Turner's Cross in 2019. Ronan Finn. Sean Cavan, Trevor Clark, or Han Voyage. Trevor Clark. No, Sean Cavan. Sean Cavan. Remember the belter? Oh, it was a cracker. Great, yeah. great little flick. You've run out of time here, Gary. I'm out, I'm out. Rovers lost a two-legged league cup final in which year? 96, 97, 98, 99. Ah, prof. You're killing me here. Two-legged league cup final to Cork. Oh, I, I ran them 98. Correct. Oh, 
10. Which player scored an own goal from all of 40 yards in a 1-0 FAI Cup first round win in 2001? Dan Murray, Neil, Dan Murray, Neil Horgan, Derek Coughlin, Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett. This is, always remember that one. Yeah, you got Alan five, ben. although you ran out of time. So That wasn't too bad, no. That's going to be a tricky one. You're you got three a, before the you're time. You're going to get limit. a lot of hatred for you, that. You got five. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're going to get a lot of hatred for that. People are going to hate me for that one, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was the quiz. And Prof, up next we have a Corkman, a Rebel, and a referee as well. Pat Kelly. So we're joined now by former League of Ireland and FIFA referee Pat Kelly, whose book It Happened by Chance was released at the end of last year. So welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thank you very much, Cal. Uh, first of all, I'll ask you, what was the inspiration for the book to put your stories down on paper and how did it all come about? Um, never thought about it, but a former player with Cork City uh, and his father said that, you know, we used to be relating stories and that, and he said, it would be a great idea if you put all your stories in a book. And that set me thinking, and that was about five, five to six years ago, and I'd be out walking and I'd be thinking of stories and thinking of things that happened and certain players. And I would just jot them on my phone. And when I go home, I'd elaborate on the stories. And I decided then that I was going to do it for one charity, Marymount Hospice. And halfway through, well, a couple of months later, there was a story on the local paper here about Declan Daly. He played with Cork City. His mother and father passed away, and his father was a former referee. So we brought them in on the ticket. And then two of my own brothers were suffering from dementia, and we brought the Alzheimer's Society in as well. So we had three good charities, and that's what sold the book, really. Did you find the stories were coming back to you immediately or did it come over time? And did you have a good memory for games and dates or did you need a bit of help there? Great memory for stories and players, but I had to get certain dates in the city library here. Um, and the photographs that we put in the book, uh, a very good friend of mine, Plunkett Carter, who is involved down through the years and he has everybody's photograph in the country, I think, that played football. So he was a big help as well. And um, all, all the stories came from memory, really. You know? And how has it been received so far, not just by the, the locals in Cork, but others involved in football? Yeah, a lot of people. I mean, we decided the book was 10 euro. And when we went to certain shops... They wanted half the proceeds. And we said, book is solidarity. And I understand it's a business as far as they're concerned. But what I did was I sent an email to all the League of Ireland clubs, as well as local clubs here. And it was very well received. We offered them 10 books for 100 euro. And we got a great response. And the feedback that we got from... The content was excellent as well. We also sold them online. We sold 100, 130 books online. But most of them were sold either by sending them to the clubs or out of the boot of my car. <laughs> <laughs> All's cool. 
Uh, so the title of the book alludes to how it all began because you were put on a road that you never intended to travel, but you took charge of your first game in Cork in 1970 when a referee didn't turn up for a match. So tell us that story. Yeah, well, my father was a referee before me in the League of Ireland. And I became involved with a, a local club here called Wembley. And I was managing their under 14 team. And we arrived at the ground one night and the referee failed to show up, which was common in, that, in those days. And I was asked to referee the match, which I did. And the fixture secretary of the Cork School Boys League was present. And after the game, he asked me if I would like to help out with uh, the School Boys League by refereeing another few matches. So here I was. I was playing a bit of junior football with my local team. I was managing an under-14 team for a different club. And here I am now going into refereeing. So we did it. And um, as I said, that was the title of the book. It happened by chance because that's exactly the way it did happen. And we just went down from there, had a few... Bad experiences, had my nose broken twice in various matches, and I was also headbutted in a League of Ireland match, believe it or not, in Daly Moon Park, going back to the early 80s, between Bohemians and Finn Harps. So that was, that was my next question, yeah, about only a couple of years in. Um, you had your nose broken. It happened twice in uh, junior soccer. Yeah. Um, like, would a lot of referees have walked away after that, do you think? They would have. But um, we had a referee observer here at the time, a Dublin man called Billy O'Neill, who was a former international referee. And he came to me and said, don't let these fellas win. He said, I'm pleading with you to continue. And that's exactly what I did. And it was good advice from him. But what he did say to me was, the first person that mentions it to you in a match, you send them off. And that happened only a few weeks later to a player who was, um, I wouldn't say he was a family friend, but we knew of him. He was a neighbour, if you like. And he he came to me after the match and apologized for what he said. But so be it. He learned from, he learned that lesson. Yeah, the first one was a player not happy with the decision. The second one was a spectator. But well, I didn't know about the League of Ireland game, the headbutt. That must be even more rare to happen uh, at that level. It was, it was. And when I say it was a headbutt now, um, you know, I had given a free kick against <laughs> a player. And from the resultant free kick, he did exactly the same. And I was cautioning him. And he just came forward and put his head to mine, I'll put it that way. He didn't uh, He didn't actually headbutt me, but he was close enough and he made contact with my head. And even though we continued the match, which is not the done thing nowadays, they would abandon the match. But we were near the end of the game. Uh, Charlie O'Leary was my referee observer Charlie who we later became the kit man of the FEI or the international team 
and um, Charlie was fuming that such an incident could happen, particularly in a League of Ireland match. But as I say, we moved on from it. Yeah, you achieved a lot in your career. You did international and Champions League games, but you're possibly best remembered for overseeing the match involving the one and only uh, Diego Maradona. You were in charge for friendly between Switzerland and Argentina, captained by Maradona in May 1990. Uh, what's your memories of that day? Well, the memories of that day, I mean, it was... First of all, it was a great appointment to, to get. And it was the week of the FAI Cup final. So it really went under the radar because the Cup final is the most important match that you can referee, your own FAI Cup final. And Kevin O'Sullivan was the referee for the FAI Cup final that year. Kevin came out as an assistant with me, along with Robert Finn from Waterford. And the game went well. You know, it's... Um, yeah, you had Maradona, you, the usual antics. You know, he was an excellent player and it was great to be up close and see exactly what was going on. But he had his little whinge every now and again. <laughs> yeah, the only consolation I have is I was bigger than him. I couldn't say that about many players. <laughs> yeah, Diego passed away a few years ago, so I'm sure when that happened you had... A lot of people asking you what he was like because the whole world was in mourning at that point, weren't they? That's true, yeah. And the local radio station here rang me. Um, it was actually um, chap called Rory O'Hagan, who is um, one of the presenters here. And he was doing a referee's course. And we got into discussion about the referee's course. And he said, pity about poor Maradona. I suppose you never refereed him. And I said, would you believe I did? So that'll tell you, it, it really went under the radar because apart from my own refereeing colleagues and family, it, you know, it was an event for everybody else because they wouldn't have known about it. And you got a signature on the match ball afterwards? We got a match ball, yeah. And um, we gave it to the boys for in the, in the national school last time, Alan and Graham and uh, we gave the ball to them to bring to the school to raffle for to raise funds for the school, and you know they were well pleased. I know you've met Messi as well. I see him in your profile photo. But who was the greatest player you ever saw on the pitch? Was it Maradona? Well, it would have been Maradona, but I mean, it, you know, George Best was another one of these players who was just unbelievable. To look back on the old footage, you know or George Best, and on the pitch that they played on, in comparison to the pitches nowadays, you know, that man had unbelievable skill. You only played a few games for, I think it was a Cork Celtic, but... I played um, a Cork Celtic in a few games, yeah. Yeah, like, did you did you go to them, or were you ref at them? I, no, I just went to, I just went to see one of the games. I think it was his first game in Tornos Cross, I went to see. Um, but you know, at that stage, I think George was just going through the motions. You know, mm. I was reading that you did a nineteen ninety three under sixteen European Championship final between Italy and Poland, and at the time, those names wouldn't mean anything to you. But then you go back and look at the lineups, and who did you find? That's right. Um, you had um, uh, Francesco Totti was playing with the Italians, and. The goalkeeper was, come on, remind me. Buffon. Buffon. 
Buffon, who was actually the reserve keeper when the when the tournament started, but uh, he played in the final as well. But as you say, those names wouldn't have meant anything to me at that time, only for going back on the history of it and looking at the match program that that was produced on the day, you know. And like I said, the big one is the FEI Cup final for a referee. You ref two of those, nineteen eighty seven and nineteen ninety six. Uh, after which you hung up your whistle and there was a really controversial moment in the 96 final that Brian Kerr always likes to remind you about, doesn't he? He does, yeah. <laughs> um, no later than two months ago when it was Brian's birthday, I just sent him a text message, happy birthday, Brian. And I said, you know, I know you're still on about the cup final in 96 and the goal that you said was a, was a goal. And when you look back on it, I know it was a goal now. At the time, you know, there was so much going on on the day, having the, the goalkeeper being sent off in the, in the first half. And uh, but I said, Brian, it was 1996. It's time to build a bridge and get over it. For people not familiar, can you just sum up what happened in, in that moment? Yeah, what happened was, um, first of all, the sending off was... Um, Alan Goff raced out of the goal and um, one of the Pats players was going through and pushed the ball and um, Alan Goff went out and deliberately stopped it with his hand to pre- prevent an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. And I had no reason only to send him off. And in, in an earlier game that season, between Pats and I think the Pats and Bowes, I sent the Pats goalkeeper off for exactly the same incident. And unfortunately, the laws don't change for cup finals or anything else. And it just had to be done. It wasn't a nice thing for me to have to do on my last game, I can assure you. But the laws are the laws and were governed by those. So Alan was sent off. Then... Um, Shelburne were a goal or Pats uh, were a goal ahead and Brent Flood went in goal uh, after maybe four minutes hesitation from Damien Richardson who didn't have a substitute goalkeeper on the bench and it was gathering the troops and decide who's going to win goal and it went to a stage where I had to go to the touchline which is what Damien wanted because he really wanted to have a go at me. But Brian Floyd went in goal and supporters behind the goal were throwing toilet rolls and Brian happened to catch the ball when it came into him. And he went and turned around and uh, was taking the toilet rolls off the, the net. But he was obviously inside the goal. My assistant was already gone out to his second last defender, so he didn't have a clear view of it. If we had VAR, we'd have been, been away with it. But unfortunately, no. <laughs> and that's what happened. And then, of course, Shelburne got the equaliser, which um, caused all sorts of problems for Pats because they had now had to go to a replay and were eventually beaten in the replay, which I didn't referee. So, 
Yeah, you say you have no choice to send the, the player off in that case for denying a goal scoring opportunity, but say for a smaller instance in a cup final, like one in 2011 stick comes to mind where a player was sent off in the first half for two yellow cars, a second for diving. Uh, is it in a referee's mind or was it ever in your mind to obviously apply the laws of the game, but at the same time, you want to keep 22 players in the pitch to make it a fair occasion, not ruin it for anybody? Yeah, that's that's the aim in, in every match. You go with 22, you expect to come off with 22. Now, if something happens during the game and you're speaking about a second yellow card, um, when a player is on the yellow card, the ball is now in his court and it's up to him to make sure he doesn't get a second yellow card. Now, um, over the past few years, I think people have been a little bit... They've used a bit of common sense and decided, you know, is diving a second yellow card? Diving a deliberate dive by a player would be a yellow card. Would it be a second yellow card? It's debatable. Mm. I think a certain amount of common sense is being used by referees nowadays. That, um, I mean, as I said, the laws are still the same. And you'd have to be supported if you gave the player a second yellow card. But um, I think a lot of common sense comes into it. Um, you don't go, in, in other words, you don't go looking for a player to get a second yellow card. Yeah. If he does something, if he does something that no, it's, if it was violent conduct, it's a straight red card. But um, if he does something that's reckless and endangers the safety of a player that becomes a second yellow card and you don't have an option there. Mm. Uh, your first cup final in 1987, that's when Shamrock Rovers made a four in a row, three doubles in succession, which was incredible. Uh, you had the perfect view on the pitch of that great team led by the midfield maestro, Pat Byrne. How, how good were they? Pat Byrne was an excellent player. Excellent. And as I mentioned in the book, he was even a better referee because he was in your ear for 90 minutes. <laughs> we're willing to listen to him. But uh, that was a great team, that time. Fantastic team. And um, I'll always remember the, the, there was a penalty. And I had refereed the League Cup final between both teams the same year when Rovers were beaten 1-0 a penalty. Dermot Keeley was playing the same day. He was player manager. Um, but Dundalk won at 1-0. And in the first half of the 87 Cup final, I awarded a penalty to Rovers when Joey Malone fouled one of the Rovers players in the box. And Harry, Harry Kenny did the rest. You know, but a fantastic team. Um, and I, I still meet a lot of them when I go to when I go to Tala or when they go to the um, Soccer Reuters Awards and things like that. And, you know, we still have good banter about it. Only a week or two earlier, there was the last ever game in Milltown was, was played. Do you remember that time? Do you remember kind of a dark cloud hanging over Shamrock Rovers yeah. on that day of the cup final? I remember it well, because at that time, the semi the cup semi-finals were played on a two-legged basis. And in the first leg in Sligo, 
Um, Sligo and Rovers drew 1 1. Uh, in the game in Milltown, which was the last game played there, um, the ball Dermot was captain, Antonio Kelly was captain of Sligo. And at the toss up, my two assistants were there with me, and Dermot Keeley says, I'm going to deck him today. He says about Tony O'Kelly. And I said, no, you're not. He said, you won't see it. I said, I'll see it even if I don't see it. I'm telling you no. And as they, they broke up for their, to go back to their, their, both their teams, I said to my two assistants, don't take your eyes off them when I'm down at the other end of the field. Don't take your eyes off them. Whether well, it's first half, second half. And as it was, it's a corner kick to Rovers, and the only two back in the Rovers half were Dermot Keeley and Tony O'Kelly. Ball comes across, and there's a big shout, of course. And when I look down, no sign of Dermot Keeley, but Tony O'Kelly is on the ground. And I look over at my assistant. And said, and all he did was shake his head. He didn't see anything. And I think that was his last match, that assistant. Don't think he learned again in the League of Ireland because he missed that incident. And the referee observer wasn't a bit pleased with him. Yeah. But it went on and the game finished level again and went back to Sligo for... Uh, the third game, which Rovers won. And uh, I wasn't the referee that day. I was only the referee for the, the second leg. Um, so, yeah, it was eventful. And, you know, that, as far as I was concerned, that ruled me out for the cup final after refereeing the semi-final. But I arrived home one night from work and my wife said that Bill Atley had been on and you're refereeing the cup final on Sunday week, uh, which was wasn't a nice. It was a lovely message to get, but uh, under the circumstances, you would expect, you know, that he'd ring me. There were no mobile phones at that stage, obviously. But um, you know, he could have picked the time to ask me to ring him back or whatever. But it was a nice way to be told that you're doing the cup final. And the finals are such a big occasion for managers, players, fans, the build-up and the sense of occasion. Uh, are you are referees like that in the day as well, or is it more about focusing the job? Hopefully you're not noticed too much, you get the big decisions right, and then later you can something to look back on with pride. Yeah, that's it. But I mean, the thing about it is, you know, it's the club's big day, it's the supporters' big day, it's also the referees' big day. And you go into that cup final and you're saying, this is my big day. I must get the important decisions right. And that, that's the way you go about it. And on the day, <laughs> I, I'll always remember it. It was in April. It was scorching on the day. Uh, so much so that the referee observer, Bill Atley, had a cold shower on for me when I went in at halftime, which I was glad to, to avail of. And then 
are just getting ready to go for the second half when Stuart comes in with a guardy and he said, the Dundalk supporters are after coming over the fence down towards the Rovers supporters at the other end. And we want you to get the match started as soon as possible. And people will, will go back to their own areas at that stage, which is what we did. And the rest of the game went without incident, really. And uh, in terms of players on the pitch, you mentioned like Maradona had a <clears throat> few rants at you, although it was in Spanish, so you wouldn't know what he was saying. <laughs> uh, said, I, I good Spanish, Cal. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, you said Pat Byrne was kind of nipping at you as well. Uh, what what were you like with players in the pitch? Um, were there some you could have a bit of crack with while also commanding respect at the same time? Did you like to have good dialogue with the players when you made decisions or didn't make decisions? Like, what was your style compared to other officials in your era? I'll tell you what. When I started refereeing, my first match in, in, the, in the middle was in the St. Pat's. And, you know, it is a learning curve. I was 25 years of age and um, you're dealing with players who are uh, uh, seasoned professionals, if you like. And I was inclined to referee with cards, try and gain control with cards because of my age, first of all, and my inexperience. And after this famous incident in Daily Moon Park, famous headbutt incident, it was felt that I was a bit controversial. And I had to take a back seat, if you like, and I decided maybe this is not for me at this age. And I went back to the Munster Senior League. And after a year or two, a year or two out, yeah, um, I was approached to know would I go back to League of Ireland. And I was reluctant at the time. But because of an injury to a colleague of mine, Kevin O'Sullivan, um, I decided, right, I'll go back. The first division was coming on stream at that stage. And I said, right, I'll give myself 12 months. I'll go in to the first division. And if I don't make progress after that, I'll come back down to local level again. But Kevin got injured and I was put into some of the high-profile matches that he would have had. And everything went well. And the rest is history, if you like. I went back and I went back with a different attitude. Though. I went back and I said, I'm going to get players. I'm going to try and win players over by cooperating with them, not going out looking for their faults, if you like. And I built up a great relationship with players. Good banter on the field. You know, uh, there was a mutual respect there. And I found it much easier after that. That said, were there one or two League of Ireland players in particular that were difficult to manage and keep in check? There were at the time, because when you look at the league now, it's like a youth league now at this stage, but at that time, there were seasoned professionals, as I say. You know, there were players coming over from England to play here. Um, um, and they wouldn't have known who you were. One, one famous incident 
was a player called Trevor Hockey. I don't know whether you ever remember him, but he was a Welsh international who actually died playing indoor, indoor football after. But he was the player manager of Athlone. And I was refereeing Athlone and <clears throat> Limerick in St. Mel's Park. And he knew of his inexperience. He read, read my inexperience at an early stage. And every decision I gave for Athlone, he was, well done, referee. Good decision, referee. And this went on for a while. And I said, I'll have to put a stop to this. So I spoke to him and I said, I would prefer if you kept your opinions to yourself, I said, and let me referee the game. You play your game, I'll referee the game. And that's the way we went on until in the second half, he deliberately went over the top of the ball to Joe Mahoney uh, and could have broken his leg. And I gave him a red card immediately. And the abuse that I got from from about the, the 50th minute until the end of the match and after the match was just unbelievable. But, as I say, the laws were there. I was governed by the laws and I had no choice, only to send them off. And um, I don't think he lasted too long with that loan um, that season. I think he finished up and went back to the the Welsh League again or wherever he came from at that stage, you know. But yeah, there were hard men around that time. And um, the only way, you know, as I said, me being small in stature uh, and young and inexperienced, I decided a different approach was needed. And I got players on my side, whether it was before the match or during the match. You'd have a bit, you know, you went in that time to the dressing room to check kits and all that. And someone might... As Mick Lawler said to me one time in one of my first matches below in Limerick, I went in to check the kit himself and Terry Flanagan were playing with Dundalk. And uh, they said, I checked the colours. What do you want to know the colours for? I said, I'm the referee. And there was about a laughter, of course. Ah, you must be the ball boy. So... We went down from there, and during the match, um, Mick decided to have a go off me, noting my inexperience as well, of course. And if he did, I cautioned him. And he said, what's the caution for? And I said, that's for abusing the ball boy. <laughs> so, you know, as I said, we built up, and I, I'm still very friendly with all of these players, like, down through the years, and... Um, it, it was a great learning curve for me as well because my attitude the first time I was in the League of Ireland was card this well and card that well. That is the only way you earn respect uh, at my age, as I said. But the whole thing changed completely. Different attitude. And I always advise referees to build up a good rapport with the players on the pitch because, you know, the respect will be mute. You have to respect the people you're dealing with for them to respect you. And they've always advocated this to young referees as well. Did you ever referee games involving a Cork team versus a Dublin club, or was the system usually arranged in such a way that Cork-based referees weren't assigned those fixtures? That's right, yeah. At that time, a uh, Cork referee very seldom refereed 
uh, a Cork team against anybody. Uh, because I know a lot of the Dublin referees refereed Dublin teams because there were more teams in Dublin and uh, Dublin was a big city, still is, and <coughs> Cork is a small place and everybody in Cork would know me as a referee. Anybody interested in sport would know I was a referee. And if you gave a decision for or against Cork City, you'd have to live with that for seven days of the week. <laughs> and that's why they decided not to appoint Cork referees. Now, I'll give you an example. I, When I was managing the referees, um, Alan was refereeing that time. And... Um, I gave him a cup game, just to, just to save expense, really, uh, where Cork City played Galway. And what happens? Murphy's Law. Alan gives a penalty to Cork City in the last couple of minutes, and all hell breaks loose. Now, it's a penalty. There's no issue with the penalty, but all hell breaks loose. because Or oh, Cork referee giving a Cork team a penalty, and that's what you have to live with, you know? But um, thankfully, he got over that, and we all got over it. You mentioned the moment ago, uh, a leg break and tackle you had to give a red card for. Obviously, it was a different time back then. Nowadays, you look back at some of the footage, uh, they weren't even given as fouls then sometimes. Now it's red cards all day long with the new rules. But in terms of modern football, is there anything about it when you watch it, you think, I could have done with that in my day. That would have been a big help. And on the flip side... Is there examples of things that have come in in recent years that you dislike and you thought, I'd actually find that difficult to deal with? When I look at matches now and, you know, there's footage, there's clips come out every time there's an incident and I'm saying, we were very lucky in our day. You had 15 minutes on a Sunday evening on RT where they got in clips of all the matches and you avoided all the controversy because when I look back, and old footage, no. There are a lot of things that I would be ashamed of with regard to incidents or positioning on the field of play and things like that, not like the modern game, you know. But it was good in our day, and it was everybody accepted it. No, there's so much diving around the place, and I feel sorry for referees at times. Really feel sorry for them. Now, we don't have VAR in this country, but... You only look at the Premiership, and even though they have VAR, there are major mistakes being made still. So, I don't know what. I have no solution for that. Um, whether it's fam familiarity with the people who are using VAR now, who are uh, managing VAR, and against their former colleagues who are now refereeing, whether that's an issue, I don't know. But um, it's very, very difficult. And I feel sorry for referees nowadays. Uh, I personally don't think we'll ever see VAR in the League of Ireland. They're talking about a VAR light, whatever that means. But do you think it'll ever happen? At the moment, I can't see it. No, I know it's been improved um, all around, all around the world, really. And I know Alan. You know, Alan is, is my son. Mm-hmm. Graham who refereed in the League of Ireland as well I know Alan this week is in Germany um, looking at 
something for the MLS called um, uh, something to do with offside. Um, I saw it in the paper during the week, and it's a, it's, it's something that will help them with offside incidents. Now it's an expensive thing by all accounts, so I can't see it happening here uh, in the foreseeable future. Um, now I can't think of the, the system now, but he mentioned it to me during the week. Um, they're trying out some system in Germany, and they're actually at a match in Germany today uh, involved with this system. And um, I don't know, I can't, as I say, the financial aspect of League of Ireland is, is difficult. Clubs are finding it difficult. Um, they're finding it difficult to, to have the, the exact finances that will uh, suffice for this, uh, for this procedure. But, um, and a lot of training would have to go into it as well, uh, as far as referees are concerned. Now, whether you'd have the same situation where former League of Ireland referees would now be judging their ex-colleagues, if you like, whether that would be an issue. But we have former referees who are now referee observers and doing an excellent job. You know, some of the young referees that, that, that came in at a young age and are now finished and have, over the past season or two, come into referee, uh, observing at League of Ireland level. And that seems to be going very well. And it's probably a way to the future. Uh, like you said, you initially followed your your father, Tim's lead lead by becoming a top-level referee. Your sons, Alan and Graham, they followed in your footsteps. How did they catch the bug? Was it watching you going on trips uh, with games around the world? Yeah, I'd say that was it. I mean, Alan played um, in the League of Ireland B division with Cork City. Um, Graham actually played with Cork City Utes. Um, Alan got the bug and decided, you know, this is for me. Liked what, liked the lifestyle that we had, and liked the trips away and uh, the big matches that were involved. And picked up an injury, and he said, "Yeah, maybe this is for me." And he decided to go that route, which made life difficult for me as I was managing the League of Ireland referees and making the appointments. Um, Graham came on board after that, and it was difficult because, you know, I may have opened a few doors for them to give them the opportunity, but I wasn't able to go and referee the matches for them. They did that, you know. And um, Alan was very professional in all that he did. Uh, Graham to a certain extent, had bigger boots to fill, if you like. And I was saying, you know, will he have the temperament? And at first I said, maybe not. But Graham took took to it like a duck to water and had a very successful career as well. So well pleased with both of them. Yeah, Adam became the youngest ever Cup Final referee in 2003, the age of 28. He's obviously made a great career for himself at an international level in the MLS in America. But actually, just before we started this interview, I thought of something. He was the first referee to officiate a game at Tata Stadium, the opening night in Sligo, or against Sligo, 
in March 2009. Uh, from speaking to him, was that a big honour for him? It was, of course. And, you know, coincidence again, like, I did the last match in Milton, Rovers and Sligo. Mm-hmm. He was doing the first game in Tala, Rovers and Sligo again. You know, which is something he didn't think about at the time, but I did. And, um, yeah, it was a, a big occasion. And um, I'll always remember, I, I was at the match myself. And, um, you know, I came through it okay, with no issues as such. And um, we just moved on from there. And uh, <clears throat> just referees, obviously, it's a tough job. I think everyone appreciates that, even if uh, a lot of us are, are giving out about you guys from the from the sidelines. But um, are you paying attention to, I suppose, uh, what media and fans are saying this season in terms of it's kind of a lot of criticism? Like, how where do you feel the standard refereeing is at the moment in Ireland? Standard refereeing is like it's like the standard of the players. There are young players coming through, learning their trade. They're coming from the under-19 league, some of them from the under-17 league, and they're now in the first division and moving on to the Premier Division. It's the same with referees. We have young referees coming through. They need time to adapt to a higher level of game. And, you know, we still have some very experienced referees there who are doing the top games, but every now and again, you have to train blood the young referees as well. And they're getting an opportunity. You know, they won't, they won't uh, set high standards at the beginning. But eventually, like all of us, you come through the system and you learn as you go along. But people have to be patient. You know, it's great for the press and the supporters and everything else. Uh, they'll all shout for a decision for their team. And when the decision goes against them, they're, you know, the referee is wrong and the referee is just, they never think about how, how many defensive errors have our team made today that caused problems or caused goals and how many of our attacking, our attacking players failed to produce what they should be producing. And that's what people have to realise. You know, it's a learning curve for young referees coming through but they have to be given the time to achieve their goal. And from what I understand, there's kind of a shortage of new referees, but you will obviously feel that football gave you a great life. You were a UEFA observer for over 20 years. You took in all these high-profile Champions League ties, so you see where it took you. So based on your experience, I'm sure you'd recommend it. Oh, I would recommend it. Certainly recommend it because... You know, all young people set out to become players. They look at the Premiership, they look at European leagues and everything else. And their aim is to, I'd love to be a player at that level. But unfortunately, not everybody makes a grade. And there has to be a pathway for young people to go into refereeing and to try it. But there again, even at schoolboy level now at this stage, the abuse coming from parents in particular and coaches who feel that they should be coaching at a higher level uh, they feel that they can decide when the referee is right and when he's wrong and continue to abuse him 
And that doesn't help anybody. You know, we, we, we've all put up with it. We've all put up with it for years. And I always envied the rugby referees because they had a height of respect and still to this day, they had a height of respect. And I think it comes from a young age. And I think schoolboys football have a lot to offer by helping young referees and by penalising or disciplining um, people who step out of line, including coaches, players. Now, we don't encourage referees to send players off at a young age. You know, I mean, there's football now from under six level all the way up. But when it comes to 14, 15, 16, now these people are becoming young men rather than schoolboy players at the Saturday office. And they become more difficult to manage. But as, as I said earlier, you have to respect the referee. Players have to respect referees. It's a two-way system. You can't, I know, people come to me and say, we had such a referee last week and he was using language to our players. And that's not acceptable. You know, on a one-to-one -one, on -one -one basis, we've all used it. But at school by level, you know, respect is the most important thing from both sides. And that's how we, enc we encourage people to come into school by refereeing. And there has to be a pathway for them to go into the League of Ireland under 14, 15, 16, and move, their way, move up. But we need young people to be, you know, and I know I've offered this facility uh, over the last couple of years that I was going to get a bunch of maybe six six young referees, put them into local school boys league for a year, um, help them, speak to them during the week, look at their matches, and encourage them to be uh, to move up the grades if you like. You know they act as a referee one week, they act as an assistant referee the next week, and vice versa. And you, you keep, if you get that system going and you develop young referees, they have a better opportunity of making the grade at that stage. So just to finish up, we're, we're talking the weekend here ahead of the Cork City Shamrock game at Turns Cross. Uh, Cork still managerless, but on the back of a good win. Roberts just suffered a surprise defeat to Drogheda. Uh, actually the first meeting in three years and the first in Cork with supporters on the ground in four years because of COVID. Um, is this always a big game when Roberts come to Cork? Whose fans love the trip and the ground to bring a great crowd? And even now they're up at the opposite ends of the table now, uh, both sets of fans will enjoy getting the better of each other. They will, of course, yeah. And um, as you say, when Rovers, <clears> come <throat> to town, when Rovers come to town, people who haven't been at matches for maybe 12 months, they'll all show up for the Rovers match. Uh, you know, I think there was a crowd of over 3,000 last Friday night for the Sligo match. Sligo weren't doing that well uh, after having a good start. Cork badly needed a win, which they got. Um, but uh, it was a poor Sligo side, I thought, last Friday night. Next Friday night is going to be totally different. Now, Cork City's biggest problem is there without so many of what you would call they're more experienced players, even though they're not experienced. 
but their more experienced players are now suspended for that match because of a red card last Friday night and the previous Friday in Dundalk they had two red cards so you know it's uh, scraping the end of the ball at this stage for Paul Liam Buckley so we'll have to wait and see what happens there but you know no doubt it'll be there'll be a good atmosphere there. Uh, you would expect Rovers to win uh, with their experienced team. But when you come to Cork, as all the Dublin teams know, it's a difficult assignment. No matter how poor a side would be or how inexperienced a side would be, you still have to battle for your points down here. I think when he retired, actually, Liam Buckley was just beginning in management in the, the late 90s, and here he is again now in That's the Blue Hills Cork. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, as I say, you know, I enjoyed my career knowing uh, that right? I had good times, had bad times, but the good, good <laughs> outweighed the bad, I can guarantee you. And um, there again, I would encourage any young person out there who has an interest and can't make it as a footballer because I didn't. So I didn't you make can... it. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't make it as a footballer. I only, I only didn't kick a ball until I was 16 and I was refereeing when I was 19. So that'll tell you how good I was. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you can buy Pat's uh, brilliant book online at patkellyref.com. And proceeds go to three charities, Marymount Hospice in the city of Cork, Mercy Hospital, Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. So a good cause. Uh, thanks, Pat, for coming on today. Thanks, Carl. It was a pleasure. Uh, some great stories, Prof. This is a really good interview. Um, first Whistler on the show and a Cork man, of course. I'm very, very surprised to hear a Cork man say that he was wrong. With the penalty, with the penalty, with the goalkeeper with walking behind the, the goal. That's a fascinating That's one. That's yeah. mental. He was, uh, Tyler Roll was being thrown on the pitch, so he picked up the Tyler Roll to throw it out of the pitch, carried the ball over the line, and Rico, or or sorry, Brian Kerr, never lets them forget about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Some really, really yeah. good. Uh, did did you did I hear you right in saying that he did World Cup qualifiers or Champions League? He was an observer. He was an observer. Yeah. Yeah, um, but did, brilliant stuff. He did um, some international matches, including the Maradona one. Ref and Maradona, uh, just absolutely uh, class. I'm not a massive fan of his son Alan, to be honest. Uh, I didn't ask the question about why Alan Kelly did not award a penalty for Rovers between the period of late 2009 and 2013 <laughs> before he left, including a blatant goal line handball clearance by a Sligo player I could have asked that girl. you could have I could have why, but you're not petty why would a referee go four years without awarding a team penalty I don't know <laughs> I don't know girl. I don't know the answer it's not eating away at you or no no it's not, it's not so a family of whistlers Graham Kelly is another one as well as two sons that's right yeah so uh, yeah I can only imagine the dinner table three generations Jesus of, Christ of referees yeah so brilliant stuff again Prof. really good Maradona Imagine ref and Maradona, brilliant, absolutely. Some, some, um, I'd say he's a good after dinner speaker. I'd imagine he does a few bits like that. I searched podcast pod and uh, Pacchetti, and he did he did some 98 FM thing or something, but it was only like 10 minutes. Mm. I couldn't find any podcasts like ours having him on, so 
that's it for us for the for the for activities again. But prop next up, it's starting eleventh. And predictions. Right. The legs are getting slaps. It's a knee slapper prof. We're gonna go poles. Suspensions, I'm not sure, I don't think we have any, but I'm gonna go Grace, Pico, Cleary. Some say So you're punishing her anyway. Punish I knew you'd say. <laughs> I'm not punishing him, I just feel it's a better option for Cork. I'm gonna go Clark if he's injured or if he's fit. Which possibly might not be the case. I'm gonna just just to be different, and because of the memories of the goal from four years ago, I'm Cabo. gonna say Cabo. Cabo. Um, if he is injured, I'm gonna go throw, Finn. Throw Chevron later. I'm gonna go Ferrugia on the left and Finn on the right because I think I think Finn has been been good whenever we've seen him play. Mm. Uh, Gary O'Neill and and Richie Tell too. Do you think Finner contributes to a better tempo from us? I think he he gets us up the field a little bit more, mm. and I think is is pressing, possibly does that as well. Then again, like I say, Ferrugia more often than not involves in our goals. Yeah, so. but I like Ferrugia on the left as well. I, I like, but I like him cutting in from the right. But listen, it's it's much of a much, so I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna go Bork, Gaff, and Born. Bork, Gaff, and Born. And we'll see. Yeah, I haven't even written down. down no. no, haven't even written no. down. How, how am I supposed to copy you then? Prof is, uh, yeah. So you're going to go Cabo instead of Cabo. Clark. That's that's my. Are you going to go oh. Fruge on the right? So I'm going to go yeah. Fruge on the left and Finn on the right. I just think um, I feel these are here for the taking. They've no Coleman. He's suspended. They've no Healy. He's suspended. Um, they've a good one. They're under under their belts against Sligo. But I feel like we with the way we're playing and especially with our away form, I feel like. We're going to do this here tonight. Hopefully no mad Davy McAllister tackles I early know, in the second yeah. half. Remember getting that? a red card. I w- yeah, Dave Berry, nuts. sweaty chips. Sweaty we're coming chips. for you. We're coming for you. So it's, I'm going to go 3-1. I'm going to say... I'm going to say a good game. 3-1. 3-1 win. Yeah, and I'm going to... Gaff, Gaff to get the monkey off his back for the last two games. He's been poor. And Gaff to have a good game. Yeah, I think the clean sheet run is going to end here. But I do fancy a win. So I'm gonna say two one, two one with uh, I'll say I'll say Berkey to score, and who else? Yeah, Gaffney as well. I like this picture here. So I'm looking forward to bus. Prof, we are running the bus. It is the Turner's Cross bus. Tifty's leaving three o'clock from the four Provs. Open from twelve. So if you want to get come in and get a bit of grub, you certainly can because the menu is up and running. Prof, they've got grub, they've got burgers, they've got wings, they've got sambos, they've got soup, sandwiches. Come down, check it out, get yourself a nice few pints of green ribbon. A few points of puddle, a few points of piper, and uh, we'll be leaving half three is the latest, lads, and that's at a push. So the itinerary is we want to get there. If we leave at three, we'll be in Cork for six, maybe ten quarter mm-hmm. past. So we're gonna go have a pub parked off down there. We'll say no names yet, but we'll pub parked off just outside Cork, edge of Cork, and uh, yeah, another another uh, day on the Tifties bus. Prof, looking forward to it. You? Absolutely, Garen. Four years since we've been to Cork. Uh, really love enjoyed Cork. the last few yeah it's one of the better ones we could end up in the Torrey top now which is, is a, a mm. bit a famous haunt for Rovers fans but I'm going to try something off the beaten path I will be sending the names of the pub around to the WhatsApp groups when we do arrive so mm. the mob will descend on the Rebel County but that is it and finally get you their new Ulgers t-shirts unless you have a problem with the old Dublin castles which some do uh, the old gear is uh, annoying people because they seem to think the GA own the Dublin Castles 
I, I agree with the lads on this one. I mean, they all have the monopoly on the the, the, the crest of Dublin. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's obviously mm. associated with it, but I'm going to be getting two from me and one, one Jaden. And um, yeah, it's a cracker. So check them out on on their socials and check out our socials as well if you want to get yourself an Ultras t-shirt great for our way days I love wearing the all white plus we will possibly we will have loads of boiler suits as well if you want keep yourself nice and clean down the cork um, that way and can get messy but that's it for this week Prof we will see you down at Turner's Cross so keep on hooping see ya Oh, my God.